Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado runs through episode 37 of the podcast, which we are trying to squeeze in here just a few days before we hit the road to go to the UK Games Expo. And Jen, oh man, she has been so busy for the last few weeks getting all of her ducks in a row and all of her goods packaged up and ready to sell. And, well, me, I've just been trying to get a bunch of stuff filmed because we're about to hit the even bigger road. In the middle of June, we'll be making our move out of the UK back to the US of A. Wish us luck. But, man, that's a lifetime from now, i.e. just a few weeks. And uh, in the meantime, we're here to do some podcasting. And you know the drill, folks. First, we're going to do some games of interest, although not very many this month, and then revisit some top 10 and round it out with some Q&As, which, as always, you can send questions to questions at rotto.com for the podcast. But enough of the preamble. Let's get right to it right after this. Okay, everybody, time for games of interest. And I'm not sure I'd have to go back and check. This might be the shortest games of interest list I have ever had in any episode of the podcast. Oh, no, what's going on? Well... If we're lucky, maybe publishers are actually starting to slow down and give us time to play the games we've already got instead of bringing out new ones. Uh, but I'm sure this is just the common for the storm, folks. But this month, I think I've only got six games to talk about. That's crazy. Well, let's start talking about them. For starters, we've got Homesteaders New Beginnings, which I am so excited for. Oh, man, we really, really liked Homesteaders. It's such a fantastic, unique auction game that does so many things so well, and our only problem with it was the lack of setup variability. And I am so happy with this expansion, and I love what they've introduced. Basically, a series of events that you have to overcome that you see the entire game mapped out for you right from the get-go, just like in the Year of the Dragon. Love that. You know what the 12 events are. You can be planning right from the get-go. Now you can do that in Homesteaders with new beginnings. That's amazing. Now, I'm very sad to say the Kickstarter for this has already come and gone. Sorry I didn't get here sooner to tell you about it, folks, because it's a pretty big deal. But I guess you'll just have to wait till it hits retail, because Homesteaders was already very good, and I suspect this is going to make it amazing. But moving on, we've got Keyflow, which is basically, my understanding is Keyflower, the card game. That is something to sit up and take notice of. Although, I'll be honest, I haven't even bothered to look more deeply into it because the designer, Richard Breeze, uh, you know, he has, he's definitely on the short list of designers I, I trust sight unseen. Uh, you know, every game he's put out for the last few years, even if it wasn't necessarily 100% for me and Jen, I've definitely respected and admired and enjoyed, and often I've just been blown away. And Scott Alden, the, the head of Board Game Geek, Aldi on board game, he he has played it, and I saw him talk about how it was absolutely amazing, and he absolutely loved it. So 
that's good enough for me, folks. Keyflow uh, has quickly become one of my must-have games of the year, seeing as how Keyflower, its big brother, is in my top ten of all time. Then we've got Five Minute Dungeons Curses Foiled Again, which... I've already done a rundown on, and you can go check that out because it's still on Kickstarter Live right now. Great little expansion for a great little fun, real-time, cooperative dungeon crawl. Add some very, very nice stuff. Lovely. But now talking about some new business, none of these expansions anymore, let's uh, break the mold with Escape Tales, The Awakening. Now, this is very interesting to me. This is the latest in uh, what has become one of the new hot trends in board gaming, Escape Rooms in a Box. There's so many different series out there. Lots of different ways to skin this cat. Lots of really clever collections of puzzles in a box people have come up with. But one thing that's been missing from pretty much all of them is an actual story, an actual narrative. I don't mean, oh, a mad scientist trapped you in a room and here's a note that says you have a half an hour. You know, not that. I mean, that's 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 just an excuse to give you a bunch of puzzles that are randomly, arbitrarily smushed together. Here's what Escape Tale promises, at least as I understand it. All that fun escape room, everybody working together trying to puzzle out a solution, but with a strongly narrative-driven um, structure putting it all together. Uh, apparently, the story has something to do with a loved one, I guess, is in a coma, and you are going to, I don't know, do some kind of dreamscaping or you know, dream-falling type stuff to, to try to find out. Or no, no, no. Or is it the, you make a deal with the devil? Anyway, you end up in some otherworldly place doing whatever you need to do to help your loved one, your daughter or your wife or something like that, get out of the coma. And what, what do you have to do in this strange otherworldly places? Escape room stuff. But if there are characters in here, if there are actual you know narrative beats that you know re- re- refer back to my history with my loved one or what's happening back in the real world, there's so much potential here because escape rooms are so fun. And there's no reason for them not to have really cool, well-implemented narrative story as well. And so, hopefully, Escape Tales pulls off. I will be finding out at UK Games Expo, because I've already talked to them, and they've got a demo there, and I'm definitely going to be playing it, and hopefully filming a little bit of it, too. So hopefully you'll find out more soon. But anyway, moving on, we have got Lost Cities Rivals. Jen loves Lost Cities. And I think it's pretty cool, too. And actually, a lot of people out there love it. I mean, a lot of people say it is the ultimate couples game. Card game, anyway. And that's kind of hard to argue with. It's just about flawless and perfect in its elegance and simplicity and compulsive gameplay. Here is Reiner Knizia revisiting maybe one of his most beloved classics of all time. It's still the same basic, trying to get as close to a possible straight of numbers um, you know, on cards and, and play them in order to score the most points. But instead of the drafting from each other that was, you know, the, the semi kind of drafting that was done in the original, now it's an auction driving everything. And that's interesting, especially because it kind of seems like it borrows a bit of the auctioning from Raw, not the, oh, look, I've got a bunch of tiles I have to use to bid, but rather the, hey, over time, I can let this auction block build with more and more and more and more stuff. When do we eventually call and say, bidding now, and then somebody gets it? That works so brilliantly in Raw, and quite frankly, I think it's kind of an overlooked 
a very important element to Raw's brilliance. Because uh, everybody just kind of gets caught up with the, oh, look, you can only bid with certain numbers. And that's cool, too. But uh, actually, I think maybe what's more strong about Raw is the way the auction block builds up. Bringing that idea into Lost Cities, man, that could be some major, you got chocolate into my peanut butter, goodness. And so I'm very interested in trying out Lost Cities Revival. And now, just one more. I told you it was a short list, folks. Folks, Spring Meadow. This is the third and concluding chapter of Uwe Rosenberg's um, trilogy of Tetris tile puzzling games. You had, what were they? Cottage Garden and Indian Summer, and now he's coming out with Spring Meadow. And I don't know. I have to admit, I thought both of the previous two games were very, very good, but way, way, way too lightweight for me and Jen. Uh, we'd rather, I guess, play Feast for Odin or even Bear Park. Um, it's interesting. I mean, there's not much of a description for Spring Meadow yet. It sounds like it might be mixing some of the elements from Uwe's other ones and maybe a little bit of the Bear Park formula as well. I don't know. Here's the thing, though. Even if Jen and I don't ultimately enjoy it because we think it's a little too light, I am 100% confident that it will still be a very well-designed, very well-considered game. And I will, even if I didn't enjoy the the total gameplay, because, again, it just maybe doesn't have enough meat on the bone for me and Jen, I'm sure I will enjoy discovering what new stuff Uwe is doing with these little Tetris tiles uh, that he's fallen in love with over the last few years. So I gotta finish it out. I gotta check out Spring Meadow, folks. I gotta. And that's it. Six new um, entries into the Games of Interest. Told ya. But we'll see what happens next month. I mean, we're getting closer to Gen Con, I'm sure the uh, announcements are going to start coming fast and furious. But in the meantime, now let's move on to revisiting some recent top 10 topics right after this. Hey, everybody. Time for the top 10s. And I don't know if you know this, but I usually film these Rado Talks Through podcasts out of order. Often I will have the Q&A done first, because it really depends on when Jen is available. That was certainly the case today. I have already done a very, very, very long Q&A session. Um, and now I've also just done the very, very short games of interest that you just heard. And so... Last thing I gotta do before we get out of here is do the top 10. But I've got two topics to cover this month. The best board game function, which is the first of a two part series. Uh, I'll worry about best pretty boards later. And then also uh, top 10 roll and write games. And here's the deal, folks. The roll-and-write topic is so big and so deep. There's so many things to talk about. I just put the run-through up a couple days ago. People are still responding to it. I think I'm going to put that one on hold. I think I'm only going to talk about best board right now, and we'll revisit the roll-and-write next month. Um, because my throat is so raw and dry right now, I just don't know how much longer I could go on. Normally... I would wait and just film the rest or record the rest of this tomorrow. But tomorrow, we're getting in our bongo and driving north to UK Games Expo. And I won't be able to record for days, so i got to get this done tonight. Time is running short. So we're just going to be revisiting best boards from a design gameplay point of view. And we'll cover best pretty boards and... I'm repeating myself now. I See, I'm clearly losing it. I'm, I'm at my wit's end. But, so... The best boards, 
run through top 10. I think that was actually fairly well received. I think people dug it. And I think the main thing to go over would be a bunch of games that I would have happily included on the list, but I had to knock it down to 10. So let's see here. I haven't even counted how many there are, but let me just go through them. Are these in alphabetical order? I think they might be. I think they are. So let's talk a bit about Seventh Continent. Of course, this is a board that is built out of cards as you play, as you explore more and more of this vast island. That if you were to, uh, you know, put all into play all at once, would pretty much fill up your entire kitchen floor. It's so gigantic, and of course, that's impossible to play. So I love the design of Seventh Continent that uh, allows the board to be put away and reset up effortlessly uh, with a really, really clever save system. I talked about this at length when I did the run-through. I was so impressed by it. Uh, And it's so cool. It's so transformative that, I mean, I can only hope it has an impact on the industry and others say, hey, yeah, it worked for them. We could do something like this too. Because why should video games have all the big, epic, you know, 20 hours of gameplay to, to play through one story and it's okay because you get to save your progress and reset up? Why can't board games do that too? Seven Wonders proves it's possible through the design of its board, of its ever-growing, ever-evolving board made out of cards. I love it. And let's see. Then we move on to... uh, I could give this to either one. Apocalypse Chaos or Burgle Brothers. So I will split it between the two. I love the 3D nature of both of these very, very cool, cooperative... um, uh, what would you call them? Uh, you know, three-dimensional boards. That's what you call them. The the fact that each of these games has multiple floors that you move along is so intoxicating because, of course, board games are implicitly flat. They're implicitly two-dimensional affairs. To be able to have something at your table that rises up like that 3D chessboard from um, you know Star Trek is so refreshing, especially because both of these games really put the 3D to good effect. Um, you know, what's it? Uh, Apocalypse Chaos, the pillars that hold up the multiple floors, they can get destroyed by the enemies, and that could trigger the end of the game. Uh, and it, it's just so evocative and visceral because, I mean, you can just get it. You can understand, oh, if the whole thing topples down, of course we're going to lose. And of course the whole thing will topple down, almost Jenga style, if they take out this last support pillar. And Burgle Brothers does a lot of very, very cool stuff with moving up and down between floors. Um, because of various effects and events that will happen to you throughout the game. Both really nice. It's so great to have 3D gameplay. I would love to see more of this. All right, then we got Black Orchestra. Now, you might look at that and say, well, really, what's special about that? And and, to be fair, the overall design of this kind of pandemic-esque move around the world and take care of problems while trying to build up to solve a really big problem, the problem of Hitler, uh, you know, it is pretty straightforward. But what really impressed me about the visual design of this game is almost the entire rule book, it feels like, the text for it is actually on the main board itself. Almost everything you would ever need to know is just immediately visible and referenceable during gameplay. It's not hidden away in a rule book. And I was really impressed by this because, quite frankly, that would have the potential to be a huge eyesore in most board games, but here it worked. And I think that's because of its presentation style. Also because of the theme of the game, you know, uh, basically trying to skulk around in Hitler's Germany during World War II and a, a plot to assassinate him. Because that world you're in is very 
dark and restricted and, and it almost feels like um, you know it, it, it's appropriate that yeah there's just words everywhere telling you what to do um, because of this regime that you know has taken control I, you know the, the way it's presented it just feels like it almost feels like oh posters I would expect to see up on the wall throughout the cities of Germany telling the populace here is how you have to comport here is what you have to do and I'm, I'm not saying that's it's that's necessarily historically accurate at all but it felt right. And to me, that was a really great example of meshing graphic design with feel to enhance the overall quality of the gameplay experience by giving you access to almost the entire instruction book without having to crack a page. I thought that was really cool in Black Orchestra. Then, Dice Forge. Well, uh, I'm kind of stretching it a bit. I mean, the... It's, it's part of the board, kind of, sort of. The sleeve that keeps all the five bajillion little die face chits straight and organized. For a guy like me who is um, habitually unorganized with how I put my games back when I'm done playing, it's such a nice breath of fresh air that developers put so much thought into keeping all this stuff straight. You can watch my run-through to see how it works. It's absolutely brilliant. Now, maybe I shouldn't because officially that's not the board. But even still... I was really impressed by the board as well. Never mind the fact that it's gobsmackingly gorgeous, one of those really beautiful French boards that are kind of becoming common these days. But the way everything was designed to where everything slots together so nicely, and there's this kind of nice progression uh, going from low numbers to high numbers that kind of you know wraps around the whole board, and the fact that it's designed so that the box itself becomes part of the presentation of the board. Uh, working that in, everything was just so nicely put together, I felt like I had to give props to Dice Forge. Then, I might want to mention a little bit about Feast for Odin, which, you know, on the surface is pretty straightforward, but there's a couple of remarkable things about it. One, this is a worker placement game, a worker placement board with, I don't know how many spaces, like 40? Something crazy, the amount of worker placement spaces you can go. But the visual design of how all those worker placement spaces are organized and laid out makes it completely undaunting, which is a big feat, because that should be something that's just like, ah, I don't even know what to do, I don't know what to look at. But the way they've organized it makes it very, very easy to grok, and that's impressive. But even more, I love those grids. I, I, um, I, I, I love the you know the, the the presentation of them and the gameplay around them and I especially love the sense of accomplishment at the end of the game if you've done well at filling them up so it's kind of a board that you are you know complicit in building over the course of the game you know your own player boards because you fill them up and you try to get them every nook and cranny squeezed full of meat and swords and various and sundry items clothing or whatever it might be. I'm, the whole package is really, really impressive. And I, I, I was really, I mean, I think a big part of what makes that game so fun and so compulsive is the presentation. I think Feast for Odin really deserves a lot of credit there. Then you've got Fresco. Oh, how I love Fresco. I've waxed Rhapsodic about it so many times. But I won't do that. But I will say the board it's pretty special. One, having a very, very cool Da Vinci-esque um, 
oh, uh, what do you call it, fresco that slowly gets revealed over the course of the game really helps accentuating the feel that we are painters slowly painting this thing by peeling back the boring-looking tiles to reveal the beautiful artwork underneath. I love that, but I also love how the entire design of the board accentuates the day-in-the-life structure of the game because... Uh, you know, okay, well, the, the turn order is first we go to the market, then we paint, then we uh, mix paints, and we and we do work in the afternoon for contracts, and then at the end of the day, we go to the theater. It's kind of, the board is almost like a big, gigantic rondelle because all the different steps of a round, which could be fairly complex, are displayed so nicely and so thematically grounded by this board design. It's just very, very impressive. An already impressive game, but the board is a big part of that in Fresco. Then we've got Kemble's Cascade. The reason I talk about this is obvious. I mean, trying to replicate an old-school 80s arcade shoot-'em-up or shmup-style game, how do you do that? How do you make a board game scroll? You know, I mean, so that you can constantly be moving forward and having wave after wave a bad guy come. Well, check out Kemble's Cascade. It shows how it's done. This one... I almost put it on the list. The reason it didn't quite make the top 10 is because I didn't really like the the flimsy plastic material they used for the individual trays that slide around. But component quality aside, the actual idea, the design, and the implementation is great. I just wish it had been something other than the kind of uh, chintzy plastic. But um, really... Hats off, I, you know, and, and and on top of that, I also love the way that you destroy. Ba- you know, you, you, when you shoot a, a ship, you know, blow it up. Uh, of course, in a video game, it would just disappear in a poof of pixels. But what are you going to do here? You take those uh, the you know, the backs of cards and put them down, so it just looks like empty space where once was a ship. It works so well. It's so everything about this game is clever. So I had to give it a nod. Kemble or the battle at Kemble's Cascade, more specifically. Really sharp stuff. Then, okay. You know, Mercator, its presentation is so-so. It's not going to win any awards, but I got to give it props for, hey, here's a game with a bunch of different, maybe more colors of cubes than just about any other Euro on the market. And any other game would just say, oh, keep them separated, throw them off to the... And me, I would just put them all in a big old pile. I love the fact that the caddies for keeping track of all your different cubes, are actually integrated into the board itself. I absolutely love it. Um, little cube trays that are part of the overall presentation, they just look they, they look like they're a part of the game. They don't look like... I've seen so many people who take all their cubes and put them in little dishes, colorful dishes, off to the side. To me, that... I'd rather just put them all in a big pile uh, because the individual dishes don't fe- they don't feel like they're part of the game. In Mercator, it does, and I gotta give props for that. I would love to see more uh, cube-heavy games do something similar. Then I gotta talk about Otis. Uh, you know the the core gameplay mechanism of this elevator of divers that are constantly moving and sliding each other. The gameplay is really really clever, but it is definitely accentuated by the des- the physical design of the board. The way things slot into each other, and you'll slide one tile that is supposed to bump into another tile that indicates how it's going to be activated, and the way the sliders to keep track of your various stats integrate. It just all comes together so nicely. Really sharply put together package. Otis, O-T-Y-S. Then, oh my gosh, Rampage. Or 
Battle for Meeple City, I think is what it was renamed when they realized, oh, we don't have the license to Rampage the video game, even though that's clearly what we've made, the board game version. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, it's a disc-flicking game, and, you know, th- it's so clever. Making It's just fun to build this board, to make these skyscrapers full of meeples with all the different floors. The, the design of the floors, they could have phoned it in, but every floor is unique and different, and I find myself, as I'm building them, wanting to put the meeples arranged so that it, you know, I mean, and it does. It makes sense. It's so clever and so smart. And then the board itself, the way it locks into position to hold tight, the way the the foundation of the buildings are raised up that has such a huge impact on how you flick your discs around. Everything about this is brilliant. And if all that wasn't enough, hey, as a side benefit, your player screens, they look like the little monsters. When you eat the meeples, you put them behind your screens as if the monster had eaten and put it... It's just brilliant across the board. Really lovely stuff is Rampage. Then, rattle, battle, grab the loot, um, which is so nicely done. I always love the idea of the game box being integrated into the gameplay. And Rattle Battle does that better than just about anything. And especially because of all the extra bits. This game comes with so many board bits. I mean, that's not at all uncommon to see games, look at all the stuff that comes with this game, you know, and all the miniatures and all the dice and all the coins and all that. Rattle Battle, Rattle, don't get me wrong, Rattle Battle does that kind of stuff too, but I love that there's an equal amount of attention to look at all the board um, accessories you can put on, islands and krakens and whirlpools and all this stuff. I, you know, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches that ensures that the game has so much replayability, but getting back to that core thing, that it's done so nicely, the way they turn the box off uh, you know, into a, a functional board. The game wouldn't work without it. So it's put together so nicely. I have to give props to Oh, Rattle Battle Grab the Loot. Then there is Saint Malo, one of many, many roll and rights out there. But most of the time the roll and rights go for the, you know, the pad of paper, which is fine. But Saint Malo I mean, they could have easily, easily, easily. And I remember when it first came out, I remember a lot of people complained that they didn't just make this a standard game where everybody has their own regular cardboard flat board. And then the game just comes with a lot of little wooden houses that represent the different types of buildings you can build. And you know what? Let's just play it like a normal Euro. Why can't this be like a normal Euro? That's what makes it special. The fact that you have to use your own artistic sensibilities to draw all those buildings, to draw the city walls, to to draw the churches and all that stuff, uh, really elevates it and makes you personally connected in a way that you know, Euros normally can't do. I'm not saying they're the only ones to do it, but I mean they did it so well. Um, I, you know, I absolutely love it. And I mean, it's standing in for a lot of other games to do this as well, but St. Malo is probably the best at it. Then... Sanctuary. Oh my goodness. So, this is a worker placement game where the worker placement spaces on your board are... Um, randomly generated every round through a series of cards. And the way those cards get laid out um, you know, as part of the river next to each other has such a huge impact on gameplay. I mean, the, the core worker placement of this game is so clever. And the way it works, the thing that makes it work is the design of the board. There is no board. It's a board made of cards, much like Seventh Continent. But the whole reinvention of worker placement absolutely relies on it. It's, uh, it's part and parcel the design of that board, that modular board, it's great in Sanctuary. And, or The Sanctuary, I believe it's called. Endangered Species is the full title. Then, Stronghold. Oh my gosh. 
pick your poison. First edition or second edition. Either way, the ambition and scope of the this game board is stellar. I absolutely love it. And I don't know, maybe, you know, old school, diehard war game fans will say, ah, that ain't nothing. You should see some of these other war boards, uh, you know, that they really do it. But I mean, I, I love how everything has a place. Every worker, every cauldron of oil, every piece of your battering ram, every um, tiny little cube that represents a, a battalion of orcs or goblins or whatever it is, everything is represented. And, um, you know, sitting back and playing the game has such an epic feel. Uh, yeah, sure, because of the gameplay to a certain extent, but it wouldn't feel anywhere near as epic without that wonderfully designed board. And the fact that the two players, or four in the original version of the game, three or four players, are playing such radically different games. One player is playing effectively a worker placement game, and the whole board is their worker placement uh, board. But another player is playing this siege um, resource management um, you know, game, where, oh, the whole board is, is their playground too. How are you playing two completely different games on the same board at the same time. And at if that weren't enough, everything feels thematically grounded. It's 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 a masterclass in board game design. I think it totally deserves to be on this list. Stronghold. And then finally, my last one I want to talk about. This is another one I almost put on the list. I really thought long and hard is Space Hulk Death Angel. This is the third time I'm talking about a game where the board is a series of cards. I talked about Seventh of the Continents and also in Sanctuary. But I think I love it most here in Space Hulk Death Angel because most of the time when you know you, you have a board, whether it's made out of cardboard or cards, the board represents a world that you're going to move your characters through. If you're going to make a game about space marines taking on aliens, yeah, let's make a grid and have players move down the grid and you'll know, go from one corridor to another and uh, through a series of tiles. That's fine. That's how Space Hulk works. But the brilliant thing about Death Angel is the board is not the world. The board is your characters. Um, it, it is your squad of Marines. Because, I mean, you, you have to see it to understand it, but basically, you have a squad of Marines represented by these cards. They're all lined up in a single column, and that represents your formation. Some Marines up front, some Marines holding back. Some Marines facing east, the eastern flank, some facing the western flank. It's a bunch of cards that represent all of them. And then what happens is the world moves around you, your board. If the board is these, um, normally in a board, you move your character around the static board. Here, the aliens are constantly swarming, going clockwise or counterclockwise, trying to take you out. And at certain spots along the board are, or along the board, which represents your column of, 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 Marines, there are the entrances, the doorways, the heating ducts, the the you know the the computer terminals, whatever it is, the you know the, the features of whatever room you're in just get put temporarily on you know get placed on either side to the left or the right of the column to visually or I should say symbolically 
thematically represent the space you're in. But from a gameplay perspective, the only thing that matters is how do I rearrange my column? How do I rearrange this board to determine where all of my Marines are standing? What flank are they protecting? And then as the aliens start coming, and it really has a totally unique feel, the way they, they're constantly in motion, swarming around you. Um, you know, they don't just move in a straight line and run up to you and you shoot at them. This game has such a really cool dynamic feel because of the fundamental structural design of how the game is presented in its card-based board. It's absolutely brilliant. It's why, for the longest time, Space Hulk Death Angel was in my top 10. It's still in my top 20. Uh, it's because of this brilliant board design. That's it, folks. There were some additional really cool, clever designs for boards. And, oh my gosh, I'm totally done now. I, I don't have to go, but you can keep listening to our Q&A, which is coming right after this. Hey, everybody. Now it's time for the questions and the answers. Well, if we do our job right. So, for folks who have sent questions to questions at rado.com, I will now be answering them. First half of this segment is all about game-related stuff. And then for people who don't care about Jen and me as people, you can skip the second half, which will be personal stuff. So, Honey Pie, you are here. You're just staring at the ceiling. Normally, when we do the game stuff, Jen's doing something on the computer. Maybe you'll get a little bit more out of her this time, folks. Since, although she's yawning, maybe she's going to go to sleep. We'll see what happens. Uh, starting off with Jason, who wonders, will we be getting a board game table sent to us as a result of the move? I think in the past you said Geek and Son would send you one when you landed somewhere. Well, we're going to be at the UK Games Expo next week, and Jen will be setting up shop in some space lent to her by Geek and Son. So I imagine we will broach the topic. It might be uh, something that could happen. Uh, another thing, the uh, guys who made Gaming Anywhere table, it was that folding table I did a run-through for uh, a few months ago, they now have a new line called the Modular Game Anywhere table, and they have said that they wanted me to do a video of that when they had that up and running too. And my understanding is they are now shipping those out to backers of the Kickstarter campaign for the, what was it, the Mod G... 54 or something like that. And so maybe I'll be getting one of those as well. Who knows? Uh, those seem like the two main options. I can also say I'll be getting a table because my mom has a table. It turns out it was the table that I remember eating on as a young lad back you know, in the 70s. And apparently it's been in the family longer than that because it was when mom was in her 20s or even when mom was a kid, the house she lived in had this table. So we're going to be getting a really ancient family table as well. So... There may be tables abounding in the new house wherever we end up landing. Time will tell. And of course, if there is one, it'll be covered for the show. William wonders. I don't think you had anything to add to that, Honey Pie. Nope. Do you have any table stories? No. Nope. Okay. If you haven't discovered it yet, I would recommend checking out Zo Zombies Run 5K training app. It's much more fun than the Couch 25K apps. Wait a minute. Oh, oh wait, no, that's just a recommendation. That wasn't a question. Because that, that falls under the personal. Although, William, I'll mention uh, and try to bring it back to board gaming that, yes, I am aware of it. I gave it to Jen. I put it on her phone back when we were living in Malta. And she was interested, but she didn't really get into it. But the reason is because, of course, there's a board game of Zombies Run. And I should be having a run-through of that up in June, but probably more like July. So, phew, 
I brought that back to board games. Anyway, though, the question, what's up with the ads that are showing up before your videos? Well, I never wanted to do it. And as always, you can go to faq.rado.com to learn more because I talk about it there. But suffice to say, um, you know, switching over to PayPal means less money is coming in. PayPal. It's as simple as Patreon. that. Uh, Patreon. Switching over to Patreon instead of Kickstarter means less money is coming in at the exact same time that our expenditures are increasing dramatically. Moving back to America, which means we'll have to start paying for health care instead of getting it for free, like any civilized nation I might think of, is going to be a real problem. And, um, you know, moving in with mom, that's probably going to, well, we don't know. It's, it's kind of unpredictable what's going to happen there. But there's basically, I, there is a lot, I mean, just the thousands upon thousands upon mm-hmm. thousands of dollars or pounds or euros or all three that we're paying to have to do this international move to get to, from Malta to UK, from UK to England, get all our stuff over there. Plus, not just our stuff, but moving all of mom's stuff to wherever we're going to end up. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just... I'm not going to say it's bankrupting us, but we are having to dip deep. And, uh, yeah, ads had to be turned on. I, I haven't wanted to do it, but, you know, for years, the majority of viewers have been saying, it's fine, we don't mind, go ahead and do it. So eventually I relented. And, you know, for folks who are curious, it's interesting. We are not, I am not allowed to talk about how much I make. What I will say is if you go to socialblade.com, you can um, type in the name of any channel, like you can type in Rado, and they will do an estimate of how much I must be making. And um, But they give this crazy range. I think if you look me up, it'll say, ah, oh, this channel should be making anywhere from 2000 to 50000 or something like that. And I remember asking Joel Eddy of Drive Through Review years ago, hey, you have ads on, how much do you make? Is that Social Blade? Is that lying? And he said, no, nah, it's pretty much telling the truth if you only pay attention to the low end. And I can confirm, um, we are much, 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 much closer to the low end of that estimate than we are to the high end, in case anybody's curious. But again, it's weird. We're not actually supposed to be able to talk about it. I mean, occasionally you see uh, channels on YouTube saying, I'm breaking the rules. I'm just going to talk about exactly what I made. I'm going to show you the... But I don't want to break the rules because... Because we need that money, quite frankly. It's expensive to move and completely uproot your life. And so, if we hit a funding level on Patreon that's kind of in the same ballpark as what we did in the last two years for Kickstarter, I think it's at some level that uh, it's at that point that we will turn it back off. But you know, for now, I'm, we, we just got to do it. And I apologize. I never wanted to. But hey, it's just two seconds long, and then you can click the skip button. So hopefully that's not too bad. Alrighty, Neil says, unless Jen, you wanted to add something to all of that. I can't imagine you did, but you might. You might surprise me. Nope. Didn't surprise me. <laughs> okay, gaming question from Neil. I heard you mentioned a few Yahtzee-esque games over uh, the time of your podcast. I was wondering if you could point me to some of your favorite ones. You're in luck, Neil. Just yesterday, I believe, I put up my top ten favorite role and rights, which is the very definition of a Yahtzee game. So, check that out. Which co-op games do you feel would best translate into solo games? Hmm. Strictly speaking, ones where you don't have to control multiple characters uh, to do it. Um, you know, I mean, Gloomhaven is great, and I have played it solo several times, but I just don't particularly enjoy the extra uh, lifting 
the extra weight of having to control two separate characters. But you know what? I'm going to say Gloomhaven anyway because the uh, you know uh, Isaac, the designer, he released a whole bunch of specific scenario solo uh, uh, solo scenarios that you can play. And I haven't played any of them, but I would certainly like to. I bet they're a blast. And yeah. Oh oh oh. Probably. What's it called? Um, Space Hulk Death Angel. I played that a lot solo. You know, I've actually done a top 10 solo list. And every single one of the games that was in my top 10 solo list were actually cooperative games that I was playing solo. So maybe go check that out. You'll probably get some good answers there. Okay. Alex says, where do I get the music that I... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Did you have anything to say about playing solo board games, Honey Pie? I'm sure you did not. I don't think I've ever played a solo board game. I'm certain you haven't. I might have done it when we had them on our phones. Yeah, okay, that's true. All right. Well, then to to, then to, 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 to shift it up a little bit, honey, honey, um, what board game would you most play uh, as a in a solo format on your smartphone? The only one that you'd put on my smartphone. Yes, but which game would you want to play on your smartphone if you were just playing it by yourself? I don't know. Okay, I tried. I tried, man. I couldn't get anything out of her, Neil. Sorry. Um, you have to give me time to think about this you, stuff. I you just say you like a curriculum and you play a curriculum. It's easy. Or a pandemic or Dungeon anything you like. Then. Dungeon Pets. Dungeon Pets. Dungeon Pets. Um, although, unfortunately, there's not an app for that, which is surprising. They've actually, I mean, CG's done some really good apps. Anyway, so I'll convert that to Galaxy Trucker. Jen chooses Galaxy Trucker. Solo on the uh, on the Android. What about um, Roll for the Galaxy? Also not available. Okay, well that's what that's what I want then. Okay, get to work on it, CG. No, not CG. Or Rio Grande, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Get to work on it. That would be awesome. I might actually play that. Okay, back to I'm sorry, who was it? Oh, Alex. Where do I get the music I use for the bumpers in the show segments? How do you choose it? Is there a theme you go for? Or is it totally random? It started what the very first Rado talks through I did. I I knew I wanted to put like I said bumpers in because I honestly at that point was thinking, hey, you know what? Someday I might have to put ads on this podcast. You never know. And I just wanted to keep that option open. And originally my thought was to literally just put in little blurts of static so it would sound like you're changing the channels on a on a radio and going from one to another, and then you hear me talk about another topic. But one, I figured probably a lot of people would find that annoying. And two, I, the that first podcast came together so fast, and I was learning how to do it as I was going. I didn't really have the wherewithal to figure out how to get a static sound and put it in. I was learning how to edit audio as I went. And I use Audacity, and Audacity has these little sounds you can make, and one of them was called Chirp, so I just put those in, and that was terrible, and everybody hated it so much and complained. A ridiculous amount, because it was just like a... That's all it was. And it was like, oh my god, you're destroying my ears! It was like, dude, it was just a little... That was it. But uh, people were really... I mean, never mind the fact that the audio quality of that first one was absolutely atrocious, but people were like, that It was just unacceptable. So now you've made it a whole bunch of times, so people are going to be all up in arms as you're doing a boop, boop. So um, I realized that for the second, I had to do something fast. And so I thought, oh, you know what would be kind of fun is if it's like, um, it sounds like, instead of the static, like I'm changing stations on a radio, it's like I put you on hold and you're listening to hold music. That was my original thought. And for the first year, basically, I would just go on YouTube and I would do a search for Muzak or elevator music, or hold music. And I would find some video, 
and I would download it and I would strip the audio out and I would just use that. And I would purposely put it in just like in the middle of a, of a, of, of like a high or a low point. So it sounds like, Oh, I, you know, I said, I'll be right back. And it's like, I hit the hold button and the music's just picking up wherever randomly inside the song. I did that for, like I said, the first year, maybe the first year and a half. And I was starting to get to the point where I was running out of Muzak elevator music, hold music that I could download on YouTube. It was starting to get pretty tough for a little while. I experimented a lift and I was like, Muzak version of John Williams music or something like that. And I did a few of those, but those were tough to find as well. But then uh, there was I, the Seth Meyers late, late, late night talk show did a parody of the Rockford Files opening theme. And, you know, the, 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 the show opening from the 70s. And, man, that was such a huge nostalgia hit for me. I absolutely loved it. I didn't think the skit was that funny, but it was just absolutely amazing. I mean, and just even saying Rockford Files, the song is immediately emblazoned in my head. Honey, you've never seen the Rock, Rock Files, have you? Nope. Nope, nothing? Nope. I'll stop right there. But uh, I was just so in love with that. I was like, okay. I'm going to go grab the Rockford Files and use that instead of the, you know, the hold music this time. And that was so cool. And a lot of people recognized and I thought, oh, this is fun. Let's just start doing this. So I, I, I then started just grabbing themes from other 70s TV shows like you know, Hawaii Five-0 and whatnot. You know, the ones I really remembered, you know, they were a big part and not ones with words, just, you know, music, musical ones. I don't know if I did the streets of San Francisco and all, all kinds of shows. And uh, then I started running out of them. I don't think I've done Taxi yet. Uh, but anyway, uh, or I did Sanford and Son and whatnot. And then I started moving into the 80s and doing stuff from there. I, I, a Team, everybody loved it when I did the A Team. Honey, you, you could do the A Team. Yeah, everybody knows the A-Team. And so this is this is what I've been doing now. I've been kind of slowly working my way through the decades. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of now up into the mid to late 80s. You know, I, I skip around a little bit, you know, and, and sometimes do some extra stuff. But, you know, I did Mork and Mindy a few episodes ago. So it's basically, I'm just doing my favorite TV shows and, and so just moving forward. Coming, huh? um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could get the, the musical... End credits, yep. and everybody recognize that, you know, and and you know, and Cheers and stuff like yeah. I, I need to be getting up. To, I think I'm getting up to that era, late '80s, early '90s now. So that's the theme, and I, I've just been enjoying it very much. I have no idea if I'm. I'm sure I'm breaking all kinds of copyright law and whatnot. But since I don't have any sponsors, or I make I make no money off of the podcast whatsoever, I assume it's fine. I don't do commercials or anything. Maybe I'd I'd have to stop doing that if I actually did get a sponsor. Well. It's not like anybody's asked to be. Actually, that's not true. A few people have asked to be sponsors, but I said no. But anyway, although I probably do, I totally do MeUndies. If MeUndies is out there listening, I, I would like some free MeUndies. But anyway, <laughs> moving on to Larry. Larry wonders, as I recall, you imagined uh, if you were going to design a board game by yourself, you'd envision a game where the economy, uh, which different players would control individual parts... Uh, how close do you think the game Feudum comes to hitting that mark? Uh, it comes very close. Larry, I cannot tell you how excited I was about Feudum when I first read about it. And in fact, if you go back and look at my games of interest for that year, I'm sure I said, oh my god, this is the game I would design if I were designing a game. But then, when it got closer to hitting the Kickstarter, I learned more about it. I was like, oh, why is there this warfare? Merchants and importers don't go to war? That, so, I'm like, oh, all right, so... 
it, 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 it was there a little bit, but actually, probably the closer game would be Fallen City of Carez, which I know is a dirty word for a lot of people, but that's actually a really interesting worker placement game where everybody takes on the role of a different guild, and they're all very... They, they function the same, but they have very asymmetrical ways of going about things, and there is a lot of economic synergy and, and interdependence between them. I thought that was actually very cool, but it doesn't work well with two at all, unfortunately. Anyway, have we played Feudum? No. Too much combat. Too much warfare, unfortunately. I realize it involves a small bit of combat, but that can easily be played without combat and still be thoroughly enjoyed. IMO, I appreciate that's your perspective, Larry. I'm sure the developers told me that too, but... Uh, Actually, you can go to faq.rado.com. I've got a question. I've got a int- a whole entry. I think it's number six for this. It was actually written in response to everybody trying to get me to play Scythe, but it's equally applicable to Feudum. Anyway, sometimes I find that I'm interested in and excited in purchasing a game only to discover that the rules are so atrociously written, and it completely causes me to lose interest. How often does this happen to you? <laughs> or do you have to force yourself to look beyond the rulebook and finally try and appreciate the game for what it is? Mm, I guess... I don't know. Honestly, I usually don't have near as much of a problem with rules as other people do. Games there, people say, Oh my God, this is the worst rulebook ever. I read it and I was like, what? Fine. There's a couple of little bits in here that are a bit vague, unfortunately, but for the most part, I, I get it. I mean, certainly I can intuit what the answer to this would be because I just understand the spirit of the game from having read the rules. But I'm a terrible litmus test for rules quality because, I mean, I literally read hundreds of rule books every year. Literally. Maybe not... I mean, maybe? Maybe? I mean, what? 15 a week? Times 52 weeks a year? So, yeah, not quite thousands. But, I mean, I read a lot of rule books. And I've gotten to the part where I can parse them, even, I guess, if they're poorly written. So that probably doesn't happen to me too terribly often. That said, I do read a lot of Kickstarter rulebooks that are not finalized. And so I do run into a lot of problems there. And I end up having to write these epic tome emails to the developer saying, well, what about this? What about this? This makes no sense. This is inconsistent. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, so I end up doing a little bit of rulebook testing for everybody. And most of the time I've noticed they take that, oh, if Rotto didn't understand, players won't understand either. And they clean those up. So uh, I guess that would be as far as my experience goes with bad rulebooks. And it, it, it hits me fairly often, but... It's not really fair to blame the rule books because they're, you know, they're like pre-alpha. Anyway, Dave, honey, do you have anything to say about bad rule books? You've never read a board game rule book in your life, have you? Nope. And but I know that there have been lots of times when you are about to pull your hair out with them. It is true. I always appreciate your ratings and comments on Board Game Geek, doing a Geek Buddy analysis, games to see what others think is a great tool. But I know you rate games on BGG as a ranking system, and that anything that wasn't right for you, you give a zero. However, doesn't rating a zero hurt the overall ranking way too much? Wouldn't it be better to give a five or a six, for example, rather than a zero? I would never do that. I would never give anything a zero. I, I basically, I give them nothing. I, I leave them blank. My Actually, you can go to faq.rao.com. Like number 22 or 21 breaks down exactly how I rate stuff. And unfortunately, I think the rating system on BoardGameGeek, as described, rules as written, is fundamentally broken. And so, unfortunately, I, there'd be a couple simple tweaks that could be done to make it work, but they don't do it, so I, I don't. I, basically, I don't rate anything lower than a 6, I think. And I, I could rate things as a five, but 
again, they're, they're, they're self-defeating. They're, they're fundamentally broken, and so I just don't do it. I, and you're right. I mean, uh, I would never give anything a zero. Nothing's that bad. It's absolutely ridiculous the way people throw zeros around. Let's see. Although, actually, if they do it, it's pointless because I think most zeros and most tens just get thrown out automatically by the secret algorithm. That's my guess as to what happens. Not that I have any inside information. All right. Because they know they're all ridiculously over-emotional, you know, rating wars. So ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, um, moving on to Thomas, who has game-related questions. Imagine yourself as a teacher in a program that teaches game history. What would be the three board games you would choose to show your students the variety of modern board gaming? If you had to choose three games that represent the best of the evolution of video gaming, what would they be? I think Jen's going to take a nap for this one. I was thinking definitely Pandemic. Yes, that would definitely be. Yeah. Um, probably Gloomhaven. Why? Because of the, I think it ties in with the D&D stuff. Modernizes the D and D stuff. Sure, but there are other games that have done it before. Maybe not as well. Oh, well, why not go with something that does it really well? Oh, that's interesting. Um, only three, huh? You'd go with Pandemic and Gloomhaven, two cooperative games to represent the whole of modern board gaming. Well, I would pretty much just have Pandemic in as a placeholder for all co-ops. I think. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool, 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 cool. Um, so what else? I would think worker placement. I'd probably go for Yijunjun Pets for worker placement. You wouldn't go for Agricola. I like Agricola a lot, but it's, I wouldn't say it's a traditional worker placement because of the different, um, the jobs and things that, and that you can do. Whereas. Yeah, but I it's think, still. All right. Okay. Well, I could go for Agricola as well. That mm-hmm. sounds good. All right. Um, That's two of my three. So you were just going to go for those anyway? Yes. Well, then I'll let you answer the third. <laughs> mm. Don't want to steal your thunder. Yes. All right, what was it? It was the uh, the variety of modern board games. Actually, I will steal Sun Thunder. Go! I think that the, what's exciting and new in the board game industry is stuff like And Then We Held Hands. I think that's new and that's different, and that is completely not what gaming is about. It's that's more about bringing some skills to your life in a in a gaming form. So I think that actually is really really a a neat way. And I think that I'm hoping that in future more companies will will develop similar games. Okay, Uh, that's that's a legit answer. I wouldn't go with it. But I, I dig it. Would you replace Pandemic? No. No. I would go for Pandemic, Agricola. Pandemic covers the modern movement of co-op. Agricola is a good... Sta- There's many you could choose from, but Agricola is just a nice, good stand-in for the wide variety of Euros. And then I'd have to do something for Ameritrash. I would probably do Kemet or Eldritch Horror. Either you know, or, or, um, you know Rising Sun or... Either some kind of light area control, light warish mini heavy game, you know, like like one of those. Oh, I can't think of the Viking one now because I've never played it. Or something that stands in for the big sweeping Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror. I'd probably go Eldritch Horror. Probably, yeah. So I'd probably go with Eldritch Horror, Pandemic, and Agricola. All righty, honey, can you do one of those? The best three for video gaming. 
She says, no. I, I don't know if she could hear it. She whispered it. Uh, the best three for video gaming. Video games got a lot longer to cover. Modern gaming. I would probably most... Let's see. Best... the the Represent best the evolution of video gaming. Well, and if you want to like, have a story, then it's got to be an early 80s arcade thing. And then probably something from the 90s. And then something from today. Or, you know, like within the last 10 years or so. So, uh, probably Pac-Man followed by... Ah... Uh, Doom, actually. Let's go with Doom, not Wolfenstein. Or I mean, you could do Descent. Or I mean, there's so, there's so many 3Ds. But um, I mean, because that's an interesting. You know, hey, look, here's a little uh, cartoony guy running around in a maze. Oh, look, now the maze. You're in the maze. So that'd be an interesting. You know, one, two, go from Pac-Man to Doom, and then something more recent. Uh, it would have to be then, um, Pac-Man to Doom to. Uh, oh, what's the hotness? The that crazy one that everybody's playing now, where you build all kinds of structures all over the place. I can't think of the name of it, but it's super duper hot. As you can see, I'm really out of touch with the with the video game industry. Oh, but now it's driving me nuts, so I got to look it up. Um, but, you know, it's just as interesting as an evolution. Hey, well, yeah, it used to be 2D, and then you're in the maze, and now look what the maze has become, and look what's being done with it. And Because I, I know, I mean, I've seen that game, and it really is pushing the boundary, and I just can't for the life of me remember what it is, even though everybody's shouting at their podcast listening app to um, get me to remember it, but I, I've never played it. I've only seen it. Although, you know, no, no, I, I'm not, I'm not going to remember what it was. I'm going to drop that. I'm going to say Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's going to be. Although I was thinking of Fortnite. The answer, Fortnite, because he built forts, you see. Um, but no, yeah, Pac-Man to Doom to um, uh, Minecraft. I think that would be a very interesting telling the story evolution in three quick games. Maybe Tomb Raider instead of Doom, though. What about EverQuest? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I only get three. I mean, and yeah, I'm right. I mean, I'm completely ignoring multiplayer, but Minecraft kind of has massive, you know, players playing together kind of thing, but not like an EverQuest. I mean, yeah, but I mean, that'd be like a whole different. I'm trying to do this whole evolution of from a little guy in a maze to you're in the maze to you make the maze, which is basically Minecraft. Yeah. That's my story. Nailed it. I. Dare anyone to come up with something better. You can't do it. It's flawless, I tell you. Although, yeah. Yeah, EverQuest or Ultima or any of them. It's tough. That's tough. Why three? You're a monster. You're a monster, Thomas. Alrighty. Next question. If you had to design an expansion re-implementation for Pandemic or Agricola, you mean two of the three games I would use to show my students of the modern variety of board games? Continue. Which one of these would you prefer to work on? If I... Ooh. Honey, would you... If somebody was going to force you... To design uh, an expansion for a game, Agricola or Pandemic? What's your choice? Agricola. Why? Because I like gardening. Okay, so you just think you, you think you come up with more ideas? Yeah, some sort of permaculture thing or something. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I totally dig that. That is a perfect answer for you. You're right. I cannot argue against that. For me, oh. also the other thing, Agricola would be a lot easier. I mean, it just it just would be. Um, there are so many, because you don't, I mean, there are just the base game has so many strings to pull so many toys in the toolbox, tools in the toolbox, toys in the toy chest to play with. (laughs) Um, you know, pandemic is a more elegant streamlined design. 
It's more to the metal. And so if you're going to do something with pandemic, you got to do a lot more work. You have to come, you have to invent more things from whole cloth rather than saying, oh, you know what? No, they've never done this with animal husbandry. How would that translate into the mechanisms that already exist? Um, so pandemic would be a lot more work. And for that reason, I also choose Agricola. <laughs> All righty. Good question. I like that one. Uh, what would you consider to be the perfect length for a Euro game? Under two hours. About an hour and a half. 90 minutes. 90 I was going to say 90 minutes as well. Although I'm, I would also accept 60 minutes. Can you name a game that you love that tends to drag on in length and on the contrary is a game that should somehow last longer to reach its full potential? Oh, darn it. Uh, no. Gloomhaven is way too long. I wish it wasn't so long. It's crazy. It's two, three hours. Eh, yeah, fair enough. Um, I think sometimes Agricola can be too long. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of games that we play we think because they didn't adjust for two players that they they go on too long. Mm, yeah. As for being too short and you wish it went on longer, you know what? I, I know a lot of times there's games where people say, oh, I can't believe it stopped. The engine just got started. This is when it gets good. I'm like, yeah, get out. While the getting's good, don't overstay your welcome. Anytime everybody complains about that, I, I play the game and think, no, this is great. They ended at just the right time. They got out and left me wanting more. I'll play again. Mm. Kind of a thing. Like, uh, Jump Drive is a perfect example. Everybody says, yeah, it's over in 15 minutes. I wish it were a half an hour so I could actually use my engine. Well, no, but it, you know, then it's just going to start repeating itself. Build the engine, use it once or twice, and then get out! Uh, that's kind of ideal for me. Way back in my very first podcast, I talked about the thematic grounding of Dominion, and it was fascinating. What other va vastly considered dry Euro games would you consider very thematic, and can you explain why? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I could do a lot of them. I mean, I, I originally thought I was going to do a repeating segment on this very topic, but then I quickly... Uh, Drop that notion because that struck me as more work because I'd have to think about it and whatnot. And you're asking me to think now. That's not fair. Um, I don't know. I, I Honestly, I think what I said um, all the way back in the first one was, hey, if you can think of another one uh, you know, that you, you say is themeless, send it in and I'll tell you how it's themeful. That, you know, and I put the challenge back to you, Thomas. You come up with something that everybody says is dry, and I will explain how it's a beautiful bouquet of thematic flavors and colors, sights and sounds. And it will teleport and transport you away because it just requires just the most, nine times out of ten, just a little bit of imagination. Like, say, Dominion, and you have yourself a very thematic game, I think. Let's see here. So, and a long story short, I'm saying, it, it's hard. I, I've talked about this before. I have an encyclopedic knowledge of board games, but I can't access it. My brain cannot go browsing. If you ask me about a specific uh, game, my brain can zero in and pull out all the information you ever want. I could wax rhapsodic and <laughs> all kinds of stuff about it. But if you just ask me for a broad thing, I I can't... I, it's literally, I can't think of any other way. In terms of library, I cannot browse my library. My brain just isn't wired that way, and I just draw a blank. If you give me a list of 50 things, then I'm, then I've got something concrete. I'm sorry, I just can't answer the question. I can't do it! I'm sorry, Thomas, I'm sorry! Let's move on to question number five. What existing gateway or filler would make a great legacy game? See, again, you're asking me to think somehow and browse through all... I mean, but the simple answer to that is any of them. Stone Age would be an amazing legacy game. Pandemic, well, Pandemic, turns out, was an amazing legacy game. Um, 
any board game can be an amazing legacy game. I, 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 I would... I would confound you, Thomas, right into next month at questionsatraw.com, and you make a suggestion for one you think that can't be a, a great legacy game, and I'll prove you wrong, because it can. Because legacy is awesome, and it can be applied to any game, period. Is there any way that you and Jen could pick... Uh, did you have something you wanted to add to that? No. Yes. Is there any way you, can, you and Jen could pick your favorite game of the month and talk about it in way more depth on the podcast? For example, what game did you most enjoy playing in the last month and why? That's hard because we play a lot of games and I don't have the ability to just think back through 30 days of games of what we played and what was my favorite. I guess as we play it, I could tell my husband, hey, this one is a top tenner for this month. Hmm. And then he could keep track of it. That might work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do, that happens sometimes in my final thoughts. Because, you know, sometimes my final thought, most of my final thoughts are like five to ten minutes. Sometimes they're 20 or 30 minutes. So I guess that's a case where that happens. But it's just because there's something about the game that engenders that. And so, I mean, I, I guess you're kind of already getting that. And and I'll be honest, I'm sorry, Thomas. I'm, I'm kind of happy with the format as it is. I'm not looking to add new segments. But, again, if you want to ask me about a specific game because you think it would be a terrible legacy and you want me to prove you wrong, or you think it has no theme whatsoever and you want to prove me wrong, bring it on back, and I will take your challenge, sir. And I will, en- I will enjoy it. I will revel in it. And I will expound upon it, which I think is what you want. So there you go. Um, let's see. Christian says... Oh, that's a long one. <laughs> but we'll come back to all his other stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, I, actually, I did. I remember I read Christian. Christian, I did read your email when it came in, and I sent it to Jen, and we both thought it was amazing. And thank you very much for sharing it. In all seriousness, uh, that was uh, that was a lot. It was it was it was very affecting. Uh, and again, all right. But anyway, and then he had actual questions, which I haven't actually. All right. So, what's my process for learning the rules? All righty. Mine is to first read and implement the setup rules, skim the action rules, and then read in detail as I start playing. I find that a first play takes on average more than two times the length of a standard playthrough. Is that normal? Is there a better way? I'm sorry, Christian. There's not. That is actually the way to do it. Uh, as you said, set up the game. Just, I mean, you know, literally get it out, physically set it up, because that will help you internalize what you're about to read because you've actually touched the components. You've seen what they look like. You know where they sit relative to each other. You know how many of them are in your hand when you start the game. You yes. know if anything's missing. <laughs> that too. And while arguably that would be true just from reading and just trying to visualize it, there's no replacement for tactile learning. And that's as close as you can get. Set the thing up, and then... I always, I hate it when rules spend a page or two trying to summarize, here's how, here's what this chit is, and here's what this card is. I always skip that, and which sometimes does cause me problems, because they just should not be putting that stuff up front. It's wrong. It's not the way human brains learn. Um, at least, well, at least not mine. I learn by experience. I don't learn by reading an encyclopedia. I learn, uh, anyway. So, yeah, I, I try to get to the, right, walk me through the structure as fast as possible of how a round works. That's the most important thing. Sometimes, 
the rule book is, oh, okay, this is great, good. We, we did the setup, and then we go straight into the structure. But then it'll get really nitty-gritty into like the subcategories. Well, during this phase, you have five actions. Let me spend a page on every one of the actions. If I see that they're doing that, I will say, fine, skipping. I will skip because I just want to know the structure right now. I'll find out about the particular things later. And so I'll skip that and say, right, okay, what happens at the end of the round? Okay, you told me what happened at the beginning. Okay, now for the main thing, I can do one of these five actions. I'm going to skip all of them because now I want to understand how does the round end because that's going to help me compartmentalize what those actions mean in the grander scheme. So give me setup, give me structure, and then give me minutia. Rules, riders. Anyway, and yeah, that's it. It's, it's what you got to do. And yeah, your first game is going to be long. There's no getting around that. The best thing you can do to help minimize that, I used to do this, but I don't have time to do it anymore. I would actually read the rules, go all the way through it, and then I would do basically the equivalent of what you see me when I film a run-through. I would actually play through it, playing as two players, try to play through a third or a half of a game so I really got it down good before I sit Jen down. So because I've experienced the flow and I've seen it and I've felt it, I can more readily guide Jen as I'm teaching her. If I had more time, that's how I would go back to doing it, but with the volume I do these days, that's impossible. But don't feel bad, Christian. It, what you described happens to everybody. Question two. Um, something's happening. Jen has left. I hear... Snarly sounds. I think the dogs are getting excited. They're getting rambunctious because they need their walk. But um, anyway, I think a similar question has been asked, uh, but I binge listened to your podcast, and the constant theme was that you don't get to go back and sink your teeth into mini games because of the volume. Hey, I was just talking about that. Question is, do you and Jen still get the same enjoyment from gaming? Oh, a ah, email notification. Go away. Covered up your email. Sorry. Do we, honey, do we still get the same enjoyment from gaming that we did when we first started, or does it feel like a job when you have to play a new game and you're not sure you're both going to like it? Hmm. I'd say most of the time we get the same amount of enjoyment as we would have years ago. Um, there are times, though, when you just, yeah, you just kind of got to get through it because you got to get through it. And I think, yeah, I mean, just not everything can be absolutely... 100% tuned to your likes. So that's a reasonable thing to have happen. I would agree. Yeah, I, I would say we're... I, I, I would I would not say we're burning out at all. Uh, there was a brief time when Jen was burning out because for a while, for a few years, I would literally do anything. I would say, hey, yeah, uh, you know, let's try anything, even if we don't think we might like it. Who knows? We'll, we'll give it a try. And Jen was very quickly saying, look, I, when was the last time we played a game we really enjoyed? Yep. And yeah, that was kind of a dark time. And after that, and <laughs> the Jen, clouds were gathering. Yeah, when Jen articulated that, I realized, okay, no, I got to be picky. And so I am super picky. I read the rules before I get the game. It's very rare that I just try it based on just track record of designer or whatnot. And so we are lucky in that I'm due to my very judicious pruning of all the games that come out. We continue to enjoy them, I guess. Yep, I am very, very fortunate. I have the best husband in the world and gaming partner because he just sorts everything out. And so, yeah, it's awesome. And learns the rules and teaches me. It's awesome! Awesome! Alrighty. Uh, do you bother counting final victory points to find a winner or... Oh, I'm sorry, I switched. This is Scott now. Do we do we count final victory points or is it... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, 
You presume that we do count up final victory points. Correct, we do. Do you do it to find out who won, or just to see how well you did against the game? Or do you enjoy winning a game if it means someone loses? Scott, you must be new to the show. There may, nothing in the world makes me happier than a tie. And everybody wins. <laughs> Rejoice in our shared victory. <laughs> yep. Don't need no stinking tiebreaker. Um, no, I I, I, I I, wish everybody could win all the time. That's why I prefer co-ops, although I very rarely get to play them because Jen prefers competitives, unfortunately. Um, That's so- just because I hate being having all the odds stacked against me. It's not that I don't like co-ops. It's just I don't like feeling beaten upon. Yeah, I guess because we normally play Euros and there isn't a high quotient of attacking, but a co-op attacks you. And so if it doesn't modulate that tension well, then Jen tunes out. So we don't play a lot of co-ops, unfortunately, because most co-ops don't modulate their tension very smartly. But, uh, say la vie. And, uh, no, no, no. We, uh, we tally it up, and I, I'll be honest, I, I like to win. I want to win. I don't want anybody else to lose, but I want to feel good about myself for winning. And the sad, sad state of affairs is, with Jen, I win, I believe... Oh, I've done the stats. I stopped doing them years ago. Like, I'm 37% of the time, I think, is what the stat was back when I used to keep track. So I don't get to feel as good about myself as often as I would like. And Jen is always very quick to say, I don't care. I'm above all of that. I'm just here to have fun. Who wins, who loses is immaterial. Until the game is going really bad for her. And everything's falling <laughs> apart. And she's getting really frustrated. And I'm like, honey, remember... You're just here to have fun. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. Well, I'm clearly not having fun if the game is against me. <laughs> yep. So, no. I mean, yeah, of course I, of course I care about winning. I, I, I don't know. I, I know Jen has often said, I don't care if I win or lose. But I have occasionally been able to say, Honey Pie, evaluate your response to this circumstance right now. And after she's over getting really mad at me for calling <laughs> her out about that, she has been upon occasion... Um, Loath to admit, but will eventually do so that, yeah, she cares about winning too, and it feels good to win. Okay, it feels good to win. Yeah, so we do care. Um, yeah, I, I would like to say we're above it all, but no, we're not. We're, we're human beings. We're, we're animals. So, last one. Oh, Scott's back. All right. Is there one restrictive, uh, restrictive element of games that make you not enjoy the game? Something that makes it too heavy thinky, that sucks the fun out of it. For us... When currency is tight, to the point the number of actions becomes limited due to your lack of currency, uh, which in turn means spending half of your actions just trying to get currency. It gives the feeling of fighting the game rather than playing the game and competing against your opponent. Honey Pie, can you think of such a, a something in games that you really find... Uh, uh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to... Uh, 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 please, you do tell. Were you going to fill No, I... Well, it... For me, it's when I don't feel like I'm getting enough done in a turn. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I've talked about that in... Oh, I think it was in the run-through for Discoveries. Because uh, it was Discoveries. Jen, Jen had... Ex- there had been games where Jen's like, I'm not satisfied with this game, and I can't articulate why. And I'm like, you have to articulate why. I have to talk about this on the show. I can't do it. And it was finally Discoveries that we got to the bottom of it. I called it Baby Step Gaming. Jen does not like baby steps. It's not all that uncommon, a design philosophy to say, yeah, you know what, when your turn comes around, you're just going to do a little thing, and it's for building up over turn after turn. It might be half the game before this these baby steps pay off into some big thing, but that's the design. Jen hates that. So 
I guess it's a form of restriction in that Jen would much rather play a game where, oh, every round I get 10 action points. Let me figure out how I'm going to spend them. Yeah. Uh, you can come back in 20 minutes, and I'll let you know what I decided. <laughs> that is more Jen's speed. So she does not like the restriction of getting to do very little on her turn. She wants every one of her turns to feel like a big deal. Yep. Or at least that I've accomplished something. I mean, just like you said, getting a piece of currency so that you can do something in three turns because you need a piece of currency and a bit of ore and a piece of wood. Now, here's my... You can only get two of those per turn. Here's my counter I'm going to ask you about. Why do you like Charterstone then? Charterstone is the epitome of a Baby Steps game. Because there's lots of variety, I think. Yeah, lots of different ways you can go. But every way you go is just like, okay, I'll get another stone, and then once I get the other thing, it'll take me five turns before I can finally get this whatever it is. Yeah, but, I mean, there's some restrictions. There's some doublers, like, you know, when you're using your pets or whatever. Spoiler alert. I didn't Sorry say about that. too much about anything. Folks, you're going to get pets at some point in Charterstone. See, you really should only talk about Charterstones in terms of what is there right from the get-go. But, of course, you don't remember what's there from the first game. I'm sorry. I sh- I shouldn't even have said anything because now I'm the one who's actually pointed it out. And actually, strictly speaking, you don't really get pets. So no, no I was just things. Things and stuff will happen that will make you more efficient. Yes, that's true. So okay, yeah, but the baby steps for me. See, you know, a lot of people complain about. I don't want to have to feed my workers. I hate that. I just want to. I mean, can't they feed themselves? I'm just here to go about the uh, the. The business of making an engine and, and becoming a titan of industry or whatever it might be. I don't mind that at all. I like that. I like it. I like a game to put harsh, punishing restrictions on me that I have to work really, really hard at overcoming. Jen and I like the the scramble to feed our people in Agricola. Or the scramble to feed our ants in Miramis is a really great example of a, of a game that has an incredibly harsh winter that will really beat you up if you don't prepare for it. Um, just because that's... To me, I mean, but that's why I like co-ops that are really, really harsh and unforgiving, too. I like the game to throw a seemingly impossible task at me. Yeah, but feeding your people or whatever, you know that's coming. That's something you can plan for. Yeah. You know ghosts are coming in ghost stories. And, yeah, you don't know which way they're coming from, but you know they're going to keep coming. And so it's a war of attrition, and you have to plan for that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Good counterpoint. Um, yeah. So, Scott's example, I can't think of an example for me. I, I thought that was a good example Jen came up with. But no, I, that's the thing. I like restrictions. To me, that's the fun part of the game. Um, although it's interesting, kind of your response is, you don't like baby steps either. I just want to do the big thing. I don't want to have to spend time making money so I can do the big thing, which are the baby steps leading up to it. I don't mind, though. Um, yeah, I keep my eye on the prize, so... Gosh, what is an example of a restrictive element of game that I actively don't enjoy? That's hard because that's the thing I enjoy the most. I, I enjoy get, putting, get, having the shackles put on me and then trying to figure out, right, how do I get myself out of this mess? So I'm sorry, Scott. I can't help you. But Jen gave you a pretty good one. It was kind of simpatico with your own. So that's it, folks. We are done with the game-related questions, but we're not done with questions. Oh, no. Now, after we take a quick break to get a drink of water and maybe take these pooches for a walk, because they're a bit antsy, we will be back and answer some personal Q&As to end up the podcast. So hold on, everybody. Unless you don't want to hear about me and Jen as people. (laughs) Uh, 
we're, you're just here for the games, in which case I'm just going to say thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. But now if you want to get to know us, hang on and we'll be right back. Okay, and now it is time, at long last, for the personal Q&A. And we are going to start off strong, Honey Pie, with Priscilla, who has four questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, question number one. Would you ever, I think this is for me, would I ever consider doing vlogs as some sort of backer reward? Vlog? What's, what's a vlog? <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it something Vladimir? You literally don't know what a vlog is? Is it a video log? It is a video log, yes. Okay, but... So you did know what a vlog is. I don't know. What would it be? Would it be just you talking about something you'd blog about? Uh, yes, that's that's the intent, is that I would just make videos daily or weekly or something to talk about whatever. Hmm. I have to say, no, I haven't really considered it. I, I could, but I think that would be undercutting this, because I don't really have a topic a day or a topic a week or even a topic a month to talk about. That's why I need these Q's and A's to feed me. So, I mean, I could do a daily vlog and answer all these questions there, but then what would the podcast do? So, no, I've never really considered it. Um, Honey Pie, do you want to do a vlog about glass or something? No. All right. Ha ha. Ha ha. All right. Uh, next question. Who is your favorite celebrity chef? And what do you think about Nigella Lawson and Ina Garten? I have at least heard of Nigella Lawson, but I have not heard of Ina Garten. I would have to say I've heard of Gordon Ramsay and I've heard of Jamie Oliver. So, oh, and Julia Childs. That is the extent of all of my celebrity chefness. Of those people, I think I really like Julia Childs. I think she's kind of a fun lady. And um, I also really respect what Jamie Oliver's doing as far as uh, school lunches for kids and getting the junk out of the cafeterias and getting them back on fresh fruit and vegetables and like food food not processed crap okay that's a lot more than i had to say about the topic so it's a good thing jen's here i've not really followed any celebrity chefs at all have you ever visited oh, and i don't know anything about gordon ramsay other than he seems to be volatile and so i have no interest in finding out more okay have you ever visited boston would you consider doing meetups once in the USA. That's two separate questions, Priscilla. Visited Boston? I haven't. Have you? No, I would love to, though. Boston is somewhere my dad taught, actually, um, in the summers when he was a younger person. And um, he's always had really nice memories of it and telling us of how it was there. So I, it's one of those places I really would like to get to. Um, so I... Guess that answers that part of the question. And would I consider doing meetups once you, in the U.S.? Well, no. They do. I want to do a Rado runs through little mini convention meetup type thing. Answer: No. Sorry, I am not that ambitious. That sounds like a lot of work, and uh, well, I just rather put the work into the show, I suppose. Plus, I'm really just contrary to popular belief, not that social and outgoing a person when it boils right down to it. Um, so. Last one. Do you like sushi? And if so, did you get much of it in Malta? Um, I like some sushi, and I don't like it enough that I seek it out. My favorite foreign food is Ethiopian food, so that's the thing I seek out when I am out and about. 
Okay. I'm sure I've had sushi at some point, although I don't remember having it. So I guess if I did, it didn't really make much of an impact on me. You don't really like fish, though. I like tuna fish. You like mayonnaise. That's what tuna fish is for. <laughs> Good mayonnaise delivery vehicle. Exactly. Plumps up the mayonnaise. Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily appropriate sushi garnish. No, I think that would astound and amaze people if you stuck mayonnaise on sushi. 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 All right, thanks, Priscilla. Let's move on to Ben, who wonders, what movie have we watched the most times? Oh, for me, that's probably the Potter series, if you will. Which movie, not which movie series? Oh, um, I'm going to have to say if it's only one movie, probably Sense and Sensibility. Really? Yeah. How many times do you think you've watched it? Um, I watch it often when I'm not with you. Oh, really? Yeah. When I when I go on yep. work trips or whatever? Yep. I just I just love it, and it makes me feel calm and happy and like things are right in the world. Okay. It is a great movie. Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Yep. For me, actually, I know the answer to that. It's pretty easy. That would be the original Star Wars. And it's not because I'm a super Star Wars head. I mean, I much prefer Star Trek. But back in the, must have been the early 80s, I still remember that, um, oh, what was it? CBS ran the first network airing of Star Wars, the original, Star Wars 4, A New Hope. And we had a Betamax recorder. And we recorded it. And coincidentally, the next week, my mom and dad left my brother and I alone in the house for a week. Uh, it was absolutely insane. It was a total home alone type thing. I must have been maybe 12 wow. or 13. And Ryan, I guess, was like 9 or 10. Uh, to be fair, my Uncle Jerry did check in on us like once a day. He came by in the evening. I remember, let's see. Here's how to put this timestamp. He took us to Splash. Is that right? I think he did during that week. But anyway, um, I remember it was a crazy week. I have no idea why my parents left us alone for a week, but it was a different time. And you could do that sort of thing, I suppose. It all worked out in the end. But we had that recording uh, because this was back. People didn't have libraries of movies or anything like that. And we had just recorded that. So that week, we must have watched Star Wars at least three times a day, <laughs> every single day. And I mean, I, we just, I just, it's burned into my brain. I still remember doing it. And so I don't think there's any movie that could come even remotely close. It's far, far, far from my favorite movie. I really like Star Wars, but you know, that was a special circumstance. So uh, that, was, that was Ben's question. Sense and sensibility. I'm really surprised by that. And oh, gosh, I've seen it like, I guess, four or five times. So... If you've seen it, all right. Let's see here. Neil says, I believe that you and Jen have previously mentioned considering moving to New Zealand. And I think you also mentioned Australia. Without having a crystal ball handy, are either of those destinations still possible for you in the future? And what most appealed to you about them as living places for you both? Mm. As far as moving there, I think we probably are not desirable as far as the New Zealand government is concerned. And um, the reason for that is they're pretty picky about who they let into their country to live. A neighbor of ours went through the um, process of that a couple of years ago. And so I was in on a lot of the minutiae that they had to do. And they were young and um, working. And uh, she had a job in a high demand um, field. So I think that 
it's unless Mr. Ham here would like to go back to making video games, which is a very desirable skill. Um, I don't think that we would be allowed to live live in New Zealand. So that's kind of off the table, but we would love to visit it. We think I mean, everything we've seen about it looks absolutely fantastic. Australia, uh, I actually am not interested in living in Australia. Um, I'd like to visit it at some point, but it's just a huge country with a lot of nothing in between interesting places. And I'm sure, you know, flying around would be fantastic to see. But I don't like all of the poisonous uh, snakes and insects and dangerous things that the continent has. Okay. I mean, I, w- is it po- would it be true to say that the, yeah, the, that the <laughs> Jen just actually saw for the first time how quiet her voice is compared to mine, um, looking at the little wave thing that's being generated. Yep. You're very quiet, honey pie. I you could definitely, you could, uh, she's trying and yet she's so quiet. But anyway, I was just saying, oh, it's Lord of the Rings, right? Before yeah. the first Lord of the Rings, I mean, New Zealand wasn't on our to-do list at all. It was too. Why? I remember Jim, Jim, my mentor in um, Bend saying how wonderful that would be the place that he would move to if ever he was able to move to somewhere. Um, and that was back when we were living in Bend in what, 92 94, 96, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, no, New Zealand's up. New Zealand's been on my radar for quite a while. I'm now trying to talk even louder. <laughs> no need, honey pie. Oh. Don't worry about it. I got some red. Yep. I'll run it through the level later after we're all done to, okay. to even it out. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, actually, unlike Jen, I mean, I, I, I would happily live in Australia. I think that'd be great. Um, and I would love, love, love to live in New Zealand, but. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's in the cards. I don't think board game videographer is high enough demand to to get us to get us through the door there, unfortunately. And we're not rich. So I'm sure if we were rich we could buy our way in in some way, shape, or form. But oh well. Let's see here. Moving on to Larry. Larry says, Rado, you've said You've never been much of a reader, at least compared to Jen. Though I think you speak quite well, especially off the cuff, and have an extremely well-rounded vocabulary. To what do you attribute that? Uh, Have you always been a good speaker? Actually, I'm not a heavy reader now, but in my formative years, I was a ridiculously voracious reader. My mom used to tell me I... I let my entire childhood pass away and missed everything because my nose was always in a book. And I mean, I was, I was reading adult level fiction at a, you know, like tenor. I mean, I was reading the entire works of Steinbeck and, uh, and catch 22 at 10 or 12 and just, you know, devouring these things. It was pretty much my hobby until I got my old TI 994A. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're even younger. I, I would read, I remember one summer, because uh, I knew the, the, the school library was going to be closed, I decided, oh, I'm going to take a couple of uh, of the Hardy Boy mystery books home this weekend, and I'll hand transcribe them so that I have them to read over the summer. Because for some reason, I guess I didn't know about the public library. I think I got, yes, I was a very stupid young child. You were going to hand... I was going to hand transcribe them, and I started doing it. I think I got three pages into it before I realized how incredibly stupid that was. 
But anyway, you know. And then in college, I was continued to be a voracious reader. I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast before, so much so that I would actually rent books because the new hot hardbacks I couldn't afford to buy, and I d- didn't want to wait to get them through the public library. So I, there was a local place, that a bookstore, that literally rented new books as they came out. And it was the entry to the video game industry and the ridiculous long hours I worked. And when I wasn't working, I was having to constantly study the rest of the industry that pretty much killed my reading bug. And it has unfortunately stayed dead even now as we speak. I had hoped when I got out of the video game industry, I'd be able to start picking up reading again. But unfortunately, board games just slipped into fill in that slot in my life. And so, yeah, there's just... It's it's unfortunate. Someday, someday, I'll get back to it. But not today. Certainly not while I'm doing Rado Runs Through full-time, which requires me reading so many rule books and keeping up with everybody who posts on my videos and all that sort of thing. It's way... I mean, so I read a lot, but it's just not actual novels or, you know, autobiographies or anything like that. I would ascribe my vocabulary, I think, to the ridiculous amount I did read back in the day. And also to my mom, who is very erudite as well. And I remember she told me growing up that she always tried to use high vocabulary with me and my brother so that it would rub off on us. That was actually a conscious decision she made raising us. So I know that's a big element in it as well. As for my history of being a good speaker, I think that's going to be a combination of several factors, but the biggest one being that I was kind of forced on me. I was a very quiet, withdrawn kid in high school, and my friends, my few friends I had, knew I had kind of a dry, acerbic wit, and I, you know, I, I could be pretty quick on my feet, but nobody ever saw that. There was this whole verbal confrontation I got in with an upperclassman in front of everybody in honors English, and that led to me being forced, against my will, to take the lead role in the senior level play, even though I was a junior, I think? I don't remember the particulars now. And then after that, overnight, I became super popular, and the character I played in the play is basically who Rado is. It's this kind of loud, boisterous character that I can put on. And I was basically thrown into the deep end of the popular, outgoing, everybody knows Richard, and oh, he's the class clown, even though that was not my, within my bailiwick, as they say. And, you know, around that same time, I ended up getting a temporary job as a vacuum cleaner salesman, so that taught me a lot about, you know, hardcore, intense speech and breaking through barriers and stuff like that. I spent several years doing customer service work, you know, on the phone when I was in college, And my first job in the video game industry as a lead designer, I had a lead artist who was basically trying to usurp the project from me. And it was a sink or swim situation. If I didn't stand up to him and talk him out of the room and under the table or over the table, whatever that would be, uh, you know, I he would have basically run roughshod over everything. So. A lot of it was sink or swim type stuff. I, you know, the Rado persona, which is basically just a ridiculously huge, bombastic, over-exaggerated version of the real me, is something that has been born out of necessity over the years. And uh, that was, I, I think that's a culmination of several different questions I've answered over the uh, previous podcast. But anyway, Jen has left. I don't know where she's gone. I heard some kind of 
<laughs> noise. I think maybe a dog was throwing up or something. I don't know. So, uh, Larry, we'll pick up with your questions in just a minute. Hold on, everybody. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Turns out Daisy did vomit, but that's not why Jen left. <laughs> she had to go check the kiln, and all is fine. Daisy's okay, the kiln is okay, the glass is okay. So, Larry, we are prepared to continue with question number two. This one for Jen. How is Richard's Rotto personality... Oh, what a coincidence. I was just talking about that. Rotto personality different from his alone with Jen personality. Does he speak and act the same way? Is he quieter and softer spoken? Does his voice still get very high sometimes, a la Jerry Seinfeld? What is the deal? <laughs> uh, any other differences? Goodness me. Well, he is much quieter. Uh, actually, not volume-wise, but he's just not as uh, gregarious, I think when we're just amongst ourselves. And that's because you can't keep that level of energy up all the time. It's just craziness. Um, that's what I used to do as a professional video game designer. I did it for 10 to 12 hours every day, usually six or seven days a week. And then you'd come home and you'd say about three words to me. That is true. Three words. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess I am happy with a more quiet Rado than his public persona. Um, that's fine. Actually, it's much more restful. We are fine being quiet with each other. And, um, yeah, we've been married for so long. It's okay. But he's still loud. Yeah. Especially when we're, like, uh, you know, eating out at a restaurant or something and with anybody else. No, I guess that's because that's your per your personality again, the public personality. Anytime we're out eating dinner with somebody. Um, right. What was the rest of the question? Am I quiet or soft-spoken? Does my voice still get very high? Do I speak and act in the same way? Um, I don't know. I think you just talk like a normal person. Okay, there you go. Between the two of us, who is the better driver? Well, he's more highly trained, but I think I'm a better driver. Well, that makes no sense. You are a male, I think, with testosterone, and you're not um, as uh, careful a driver as I am. <laughs> says the woman who um, got in that fender bender in the roundabout out in Devon. Well, that's because you were talking to me and distracting me and there was too much going on. <laughs> oh, there you go. Somehow, even though I wasn't behind the wheel, the crash was still my fault, folks. It's true. I am. I do have a lot more training than Jen because back in our college days, uh, one of the part-time jobs I had was a professional mailman. And I did that long enough that I got quite a bit of government-level driving training because, of course, you have to drive the postal vehicles over the place. And I don't remember. I got tra trained up to like a 5- or a 10-ton truck. I don't remember how much, but I went through a lot of that, and it was really good training, much better than what we get in driver's ed class in high school. I, and although, I, yeah, just really just better considered. And is Jen a better driver than me? I That's hard. I would say we're comparable when it boils right down to it. I think we have an equal number of slip-ups behind the wheel, although I've never rolled a car, although Jen has, well, for the record. Well, that is also not my fault. Funny how these crashes <laughs> where she's behind the wheel, none of them seem to be her fault, even though no one's hands are on the wheel at all. Go figure. Well, someone else's hands were on the wheel when I rolled the car. I wasn't there. You were not there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, an ex-boyfriend. Uh, well, 
okay, I guess I didn't know the whole story there. I just know she rolled the car. And, um, yeah, so I think we have roughly the same number of accidents on our report. I know it's interesting. I'm a better driver when Jen is not in the car. I, I, I'm kind of hard-pressed to say why, but I think she distracts me. And, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm paying attention, but, yeah, I, 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 I notice I more tend to little human slip-ups, I guess, just because I'm talking to her or I'm paying attention to her. I, I know for a fact I do much, much better when she's not in the car. I don't know if she has the same kind of response or anything like that. Hmm. I think, I think one of the reasons I think I'm a better driver is because I'm very, very kind of hypermiler kind of thing where I'm aware of my situation and I'm looking ahead far enough that I don't have to brake necessarily. I just take off the accelerator, um, stuff like that. I think, I think that is better driving. So maybe we have different definitions of better driving. Ah, uh, it is certainly true. I, I ride the clutch and, uh, yeah, I break at the last minute and, and you I break exce- and you accelerate and you break and you accelerate and you break when it's not absolutely necessary. That is certainly true. And I don't think you look ahead as far as I do. I I would say by that metric, Jen is a more proper driver than me, perhaps. Ooh, but in terms of actual safety behind the wheel, uh, in terms of likelihood of getting in an accident, uh, well, I, I'll just say it again. I'll put my record up against Jen any day of the week. And my accidents were my fault. They were nobody else's fault, for the record. Unlike what some people might Your say. Your accidents? Nobody else was in the car. <gasps> gasp although you would blame someone else for that major one in the bottom of lake city way and on northgate when you lost your license oh yeah that was totally not my fault i was totally rickrolled by the coppers that time that is 100 percent for sure um i mean i was partially to blame but no the the other driver was definitely 100 percent at fault there but anyway we've lived in malta now so i think we've both got a crash course in crappy driving defensive driving Mm. There you go. The ultimate defensive driving. Who has the better sense of humor? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to judge that for yourself. I don't know. How how can I possibly say I've got a better sense of humor than you do? Or you have better than me? It totally depends. You you, you just put your lips into certain... No. um, Totally subjective. Totally subjective. And in your subjective opinion, who has the better sense of humor? Well... I I have to think about it. I love your sense of humor. I don't think you understand the question. Who has a better sense of humor? It's 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 not like you're you're trying to say who, whose sense of humor you like more. When you ask somebody who has a better sense of humor, it's generally a question of, you know, who has a broader appreciation for humor, who who laughs at more stuff, oh. who is more easygoing, who is um, you know, well, all your metrics, that's you then. It is me. <laughs> I would have said we had compatible senses of humor. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I, that's fine. But um, no, I like. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. here's here the secrets coming out. He thinks my sense of humor is not as good as his. I'm, I'm I will make no secret of it. Yes, I do think I have a broader range for appreciations of humor types. Oh, let's say. Yeah, I I have a problem with some types of humor that just make me cringe and want to crawl into a corner and die. They just make me feel so bad. Yeah. Uh, Jen cannot handle, I think the term for it now is embarrassment or em- embarrassment humor, embarrassment comedy, em- em- or something like that. Uh, you know, basically the, 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 the trade of the office. You know, Jen would not be able to handle uh, 
uh, a David Brent, Michael Scott type. Oh, it's it, it's implicitly funny because of what a fool they're making of themselves, kind of thing. And oh, I can't believe they said that or did that. I mean, that's Jen just can't stand it. I'll, to be all the, to, on the other hand, though, Jen has a much greater appreciation of slapstick than I do, which I I can. I mean, I, it's fine, but it, I rarely get to chuckle out of me. Whereas Jen will, Jen loves a good banana peel gag. I attribute that to my dad. And she also loves ridiculous, stupid, hokey, terrible puns. I love that, them. Yeah, that nobody else can even remotely stand. Well, okay. Oh, so maybe it comes out in the wash. Maybe we are tied after all. Tell them about that um, silly people that we watched, the Thanksgiving episode that was just so awful and cringeworthy. But yes, that would, have been a, that would have been an entire episode devoted to one character being terribly embarrassed by the situation and it being... Hilarious as a result, and Jen couldn't stand it. It was her least favorite episode of the entire show. So, uh, we have different senses of humor. Jen, what is your maiden name? Why do you want to know? Are you afraid he's going to do some kind of... I'm sure you can find out if he wants. <laughs> no, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I do know what it is, though. I also know what it is. <laughs> My middle name is Richard Allen Ham, hence my initials R-A-H, the Raw in Rado. So you're going to keep it a secret, huh? Well, I don't know. I just, I have, I'm a bit of a privacy freak, and so I want to know why people want to know further information about my, me. Well, Larry, you can uh, write to questions at rado.com next month and explain your reason to want to know Jen's middle name. Or not middle name, maiden name. Well, I don't have a maiden name myself. You're not going to give her your maiden name. You're not a maiden. Indeed. Okay. So, do the two of you ever fight? Minor tiffs or knock down drag outs? Mm. I think we've gone over this a couple times in the past uh, when people have asked this question. And we very rarely argue or fight. Um, occasionally, I will get so fed up and so stressed out and so completely over the edge that I explode. And I'm not proud of that. Um, but... It happens occasionally, and we talk through it once it happens and try to figure out how to not make it happen in the future. Okay. Jen, I know you avoid darker TV shows. Do do you think you might make an exception for The Handmaid's Tale? Have you read the book? Mm. I started reading the book, and I just couldn't do it. I felt very unhappy while I was reading it, and I just thought, life's too short. I'm not going to put myself through this. I read a synopsis of it, and I thought, okay, I understand the story. I understand where this was going, and um, I, it's, uh, my, oh, I just, honestly, women have had rights for such a short amount of time, such a little tiny bit of our history, that the idea that we lose them and go back to being property, it's just uh, so depressing to me. So I don't want that to happen. Dokey doke. There you go, Larry. Yeah, I, I could have told you. There's no way she can handle that. I also read the book back when I was a voracious reader in high school. Okay, moving on to Timothy. That was just me circling back around to the earlier question. Now that you're in England, how are you feeling about the whole moving process, including Malta to England, England to the U.S., and ending up in the U.S. for the foreseeable future? Go! Well, exhausted, I think, is a pretty good way to feel about it. It's... Uh, it's, it's just a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. That's all you have to say? Um, well, I think 
things are going to be really exciting once we move into our new place and get settled in. And it'll be lovely to be back in the States and see my family more often and, um, you know, have a, have a different life. That's always good. Change is good. Fresh, exciting, all that. Yep, but the moving part kind of sucks. We've been here now a couple months in England and I've kind of felt settled and the other day I was feeling kind of angry, actually, about <laughs> just, oh, this is really good, and now I have to give it up, and I have to go do this again, and then I have to do it again. And moving is probably my least favorite thing in the world, so um, the fact that I'm moving three times, just, ugh, yuck. So, not to be a complainy whiny pants, but uh, I don't really like it. And I'm looking forward to getting settled again and getting back to my routine and making stuff and having my studio set up and all that. Okie dokie. I have been surprised how quickly I was ready to move on from Malta. I, I have to admit, I don't really miss it at all. And I know I can intellectually say, I can remember there were so many things I loved about it, but I don't know. I mean, I've actually spent a good deal of my life moving from place to place, so... I don't think I've ever been anywhere for more than three or four years at the absolute longest. So I, 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 to me, I don't know, maybe I just don't quite root as strongly as Jen does to begin with. I can say I was genuinely surprised how immediately we fell back into a, a, day, a nice, comfortable daily rhythm here in England. I know Jen's often said over the years, oh, we can never go back to Bend. We can never go back to Austin. We can never go back to, you know, X, Y, or Z because you just can't go back. It's not the same. But we've come back here and it's the same. It's just as good as it ever was. And uh, and, and Jen's right. It's, it's going to be hard to go. And we go back, I think, even though we've only been here, like Jen said, for a few weeks. Months. Uh, for, uh, well, uh, uh, two months is a compilation of a few weeks. A few weeks is like two to three weeks. Mm, several weeks. <laughs> Even though we've been here several weeks, I think we, I, I'll probably miss this because uh, this is so great over Malta. And Malta was great, too. I, it was absolutely phenomenal. Once in a lifetime opportunity to live where we lived. But there's just something so lovely and homey about this little house we've got here in England. And we will definitely miss it again. So it's the worst going through withdrawals over and over again. Whose idea was this? Oh, I don't know. Who? Um, the, the multiple triple step move. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's my um, efficiency bug. That's definitely my problem. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Okay. Thomas says, we have to scroll down. Does, do, we, do we have any favorite westerns, horror movies, gangster movies, and comedies? Honey, what's your favorite western? Uh, the only thing that springs to mind is Blazing Saddles because that's one of my dad's favorite movies. And you don't like it, do you? I liked it as a kid. That was it was good fun, slapstick humor again. Mm -hmm. um, a western. I mean, of course, John Wayne stuff springs to mind, but I'm actually not sure I've actually sat through a whole John Wayne movie before. It's acceptable to say you don't have a favorite western. Oh, I'm trying to think. There must be a western that I've seen though, like something with modern stars who are in the West? Let me give you a hint. You tell them I'm coming! And hell's coming with me! Or also, well, you're my huckleberry. <laughs> I do like that. And you don't know what it is, do you? Actually, I don't. Tombstone. Of course, Tombstone! Tombstone, <laughs> yes. That's my favorite Western. It, it is her favorite Western, not that she remembered it all. I think we've only ever seen it once. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, 
Val whole, Kilmer. A whole bunch of people. Ooh, he was yummy. Not in that movie. He was suffering from tuberculosis in that film. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking more Mad Mardigan Val Kilmer, I yes. think, or Top Gun Val Kilmer. Yep, yep. Anyway, uh, mine, easy, Quick in the Dead. I absolutely love it. It's uh, Sam Raimi starring Sharon Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio. The and Saint. Val Kilmer and The Saint. Yeah, Jen has an unhealthy obsession with that movie. Uh, not that it's the one I've seen the most times, though. <laughs> not even. Uh, but anyway, Quick in the Dead is absolutely amazing. I would happily sit down and watch that anytime, anywhere. And, of course, I mean, yeah, um, Tombstone is great. And, uh, and Silverado and... I mean, yeah, there's so many great ones, but I mean, a Quick in the Dead, by far. Honey, moving on. What's your favorite horror movie? The Stand. Okay. You mean the miniseries that was on ABC with Molly Ringwald and Gary Sinise? I guess so, yeah. Because, <laughs> oh, oh, um, what's the one with Kathy Bates? Kathy, it's another Stephen King. Oh, right. Um, oh, I can't think of it. She breaks his ankles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you like that movie? Well, I have to have a... I'm trying to think of horror films that I've seen, and there's not very many. The question wasn't, what have you seen? It's, what is your favorite? And it's perfectly acceptable, again, to say you don't have a favorite because you fundamentally don't like it. Yeah, I don't watch the slasher kind of things. I don't watch any... Um, who's the guy with the goalie mask? That would be Jason, Friday the 13th. Yeah, I don't watch any of that kind of stuff. Um, so the horror movies I've seen are that one with Kathy Bates, the Stephen King one. And I didn't even see... What's the one with the shower? The <laughs> That would be Psycho. Psycho. Yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you weren't born at the time, so... Um, there's another one that I haven't seen either. Red Rum? You... Red Rum. Oh, oh, Murder Backwards. That's uh, The Shining. Yep. Oh, that's the one I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. So, no, sorry, don't have a lot. So I guess it would have to be that Kathy Bates one because that's the only one I can think of that I've actually seen. That's a movie because apparently The Stand is not a movie. It's a miniseries. No, it's it's fine. But, I mean, you, you, you've seen it. That doesn't implicitly make it your favorite if you didn't like it. I mean, if you watch that now, you wouldn't find that palatable at all, oh, I don't think. Oh, um, Silence of the Lamb. Yes, you, that's another one you've seen. Apparently that it would be because I remembered it and, Yeah. I actually, after seeing that, I kind of decided I didn't want to watch those kind of movies anymore because I don't, I don't need that in my head. Yes, that's kind of evidence again of not liking it. <laughs> therefore, it can't be your favorite. Again, are you fine with you don't have a favorite horror film? Yeah, that's fine. I don't have one. All righty, I would have to. The easy answer is Aliens. Oh, Aliens! You don't like Aliens? I really don't. But I, I do remember. Yes, it's a movie I've seen. <laughs> Right. But I didn't like it, but oh! I remember it, though. <laughs> okay. Aliens is the answer, but uh, I, I think too many people would argue that it's not a horror movie or it's an action horror movie or something. So I'll take that off the table. And I will admit, you know, some might call it a guilty pleasure, but I'm not guilty. I, I, I have no problem admitting that I love found footage. I, I can't get enough of it. Even really crappy, terrible found footage I always find compelling. What's found footage? A found footage film or TV show or whatever is it's presented. It's it's a work of fiction, but it's presented like, hey, somebody came across a locker and they found a videotape in it. And it was full of a bunch of footage that people took of a terrible event that happened. And they stitch it all back together. And here's, you know, here's like a first person perspective of of these events. Mm. 
uh, because they you found the lost footage. It's found footage. Okay. It's a whole genre. And the vast majority of found footage is horror. Um, because, well, there was a horror film, Blair Witch Project, that really popularized it. You, uh, gosh, have you seen any found footage? You, pr- um, you saw Cloverfield. Remember, it was a bunch of people, they had a video camera, and they were running through New York while New York was being attacked by a gigantic Godzilla-type monster. Don't remember it. Yep. It's a very shaky cam, because everybody's always running around carrying the camera. Uh, so anyway, I, I do, I, I honestly, honestly, I'm going to say, what was it? Not Blair Witch, although I really did like Blair Witch quite a lot, but um, the the super mega hit series. I've seen them all, even the bad. Well, I mean, people say most of them are bad, but I've enjoyed most of them. Uh, paranormal behavior? Paranormal something. The found footage thing that has paranormal in the name. Paranormal something or other. Oh, now i got to look it up. Paranormal. Paranormal activity. The first one and the second one. I mean, they probably should have stopped while they were ahead. But I've watched them all, and I've enjoyed all of them, even if they weren't good. But I'm going to say Paranormal Activity. Oh, I love it. Um, someday, i, I got to get Jen to try it just to see what will happen. Because it will freak her out. I don't need freaking out. Freak you out! I've got a very active imagination. I do not need extra stuff shoved in there to make me freak out about more stuff. See, that's the thing about found footage. It's... Well, it's not real, but it's it's so yeah. it pulls you in in a way that you know regular movies just don't just yeah. can't. I don't think I want that. Oh, now it's a challenge. All righty, <laughs> sneak it in, honey. Your favorite gangster movie? Oh gosh, gangsters don't like them. Yep, that's fine. Uh, you know what? I mean, probably Goodfellas, I suppose. But I have to admit, I am just not really attracted to crime genre fiction either. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, and certainly not organized crime. I mean, you know, crime fiction, which is just like, you know, an ordinary person who gets pulled into extraordinary circumstances, you know, your Fargo type things. Oh, yeah, I love that. But I mean, nobody would call Fargo a gangster film. Like Dick Francis novels. I love Dick Francis novels. Okay. All righty. I guess there's organized crime in some of those. But still, I mean, he's talking about stuff where the point of view is from the the mobsters, the gangsters. Yeah, um, it was really, and I thought I enjoyed it more, but I guess I just never really took to it. And I mean, because, you know, obviously Goodfellas is an amazing film and you know, Godfather and all that, but well, there was that podcast that was such a big deal a couple, last year or the year before, everybody was just raving about it. I can't think of the name of it now, but it was basically a couple of podcasters basically investigating some series of grisly murders. I don't even know what it was now. It's was, it was hugely popular. I tried listening to it and I'm like, I just, I don't care. I I just, it's it's not interesting to me. So I, I don't really have a favorite one either, I don't think. But Honey Pie, surely you have a favorite comedy. Oh, I have several favorite comedies. Um, okay, here's my favorite dark comedy with gross point blank. Good one. Yeah. I mean, I do love Lloyd Dobler and mm-hmm. all he does. Um, let's see. Most people wouldn't consider that a particularly dark comedy, but for Jen, Gross White Blank is pretty dark. Okay. Um, and comedy, other comedies. I like, um, I liked Big when I was younger. I thought that was a really great comedy. Um, the Jennifer Garner one, which came out, which was similar. I thought it was nice to have a female perspective. 13 going on 30. Okay. And let's see, other comedies. There's so many. There's so many. How am I supposed to? I, I can't just pull them all out of the air. Well, then I guess your favorite is one of those. Okay. 
All right. Uh, mine, I would probably say, would be um, Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, Joe. Joe Banks. Losing my soul. Uh, easily Joe versus the Volcano. Number two would be Raising Arizona, which Jen can't stand. She's tried several times to watch it. Have I ever made it all the way through? I don't think I've made it through. Nope. All righty. What are your favorite movies in the Marvel cinema cinematographic universe? <laughs> the cinematographic universe. Well, I don't know about that universe. I love the Star-Lord. I think he's hilarious. So your favorite is Guardian of the Galaxy? Well, I like the Star-Lord. I like his um, irreverent humor. And I liked. I really liked the latest Thor one where he was... Um, Yes, Thor Ragnarok, yes. Thank you, that, Thor Ragnarok. That was awesome. I really I like that irreverent humor. Then which is your favorite? That one, the Thor Ragnarok. All right, that would have been my guess. Yeah. The other one with Root and stuff is very nice, but there's a there's a lot of downtime in that one. Okay. Between times. Okay. I Okay. Um, mine would... Uh, Probably Captain America, Winter Soldier. Actually, any I mean, of the series, Captain America. All three Captain America films are great. I, I really liked First Avenger and Winter Soldier and Civil War. And um, I really liked Ant-Man a lot. I really, really, you know, I mean, I just, who doesn't like Paul Rudd? I thought, it was, I thought that was just so wonderfully put together as, you know, a heist film in the, in the Marvel Universe. And... Yeah, I mean, Thor Ragnarok was great, and the Guardians of the Galaxy are great, and but I'm probably have, I'd probably have to go with one of the Captain Americas, I think. Although, I mean, I, there's not one I haven't liked. I've liked them all. I've, I, I really liked Avengers Age of Ultron, which I know is fashionable to beat up on. I thought that was fantastic, too. Um, so they all range from great to fantastic, but probably Winter Soldier, probably. Let's see here. And uh, what three series that began to air in the last... Oh, and by the way, I should say, I have not, we have not seen Infinity War yet. So no spoilers, please. Maybe that'll be it, seeing as how it's from the director of the second and third Captain America. What three series that began to air in the last five years would you recommend to someone who doesn't know anything about contemporary television? You are asking the wrong person. What three TV shows are the first that pop into your head, honey, when you think about recent TV shows? Designated Survivor. Why would you recommend that to somebody who hasn't been keeping up on modern television? Um, because you might think that that is how things are in the States and that somebody who has got a brain is in control. Sorry, Trump supporters. <laughs> um, I just think that that is a fantastic show. I love how they detail his decision-making, how there's always a moral reason for what he's doing, how he sticks to his guns. I just I just think it's very intelligent. Um, harkens back to, what was the other White House one? The West Wing. Yep, the West Wing. Loved that too. Uh, I, just, I just wish I could live in that universe. Um, right, other shows? Really, you can't think of any other shows? Of course, well there's Brooklyn Nine-Nine that we're watching right now. Thank you! Okay, that is a single-person ensemble camera thing. I don't know, what what is it called? Single-camera ensemble comedy. 
Okay, right. Jen saw a description of it and demanded to know, what do they mean, single camera? Why are you telling me this? Why is this important information? She really got up in arms about the... De- and I had to spend a lot of time talking about single versus multi-camera sitcoms and the history and why it makes a difference. And it was a very interesting and random out-of-the-blue conversation. <laughs> so, honey, you've got two. Designated Survivor, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. One more and you're home free. Mm, well, Survivor's been going for so long that I don't think that would count for the last five years. Um... I guess I used to really like, uh, what's the tattoo lady? Blind spot. Blind spot, but that's kind of gotten a little uh, lately. Um, are you thinking of something? Not for you. Not for me. Oh, okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else I like. I am living in England, and the BBC puts on these amazing miniseries where people who are historians and who know about things how things were in the past they actually dress up and they go and they live in that time meaning they get rid of the technology of today they do whatever they're going to do they live their lives and they they live for like a month in various ages and deal with how life would have been back then and they film that and i just think that is super cool because there's so much that we take for granted in our modern lives and kings of yesteryear do not live as well as a person on welfare does these days. So um, I think if I had to say something about programming, something like that would come up because I just think it's absolutely fantastic. That's right. Those are fantastic shows. Um, Whole series of them. Most of them starring Ruth Kearns Goodwin, as I recall, is her name. Yeah. Right. For me, uh, just off the top of my head, The Expanse, because that is the best pop culture science fiction ever, quite frankly, that's ever been filmed when it boils right down to it. It's so full of hard science and yet still really cool, amazing characters and epic story arcs, good special effects. Everything about it is absolutely phenomenal. So that's number one. See, to recommend just to somebody blind, I mean, there's so many things I'd recommend, but I mean, you know, it could be so hit or miss. I mean, I'd recommend The Walking Dead, but... I mean, that could be a real turnoff for people. So I'm just trying to think of truly, universally, um, uh, you know, uh, appealing. And actually, I'd probably go with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, too. I mean, it's it's silly, goofy. It had a rocky start, but by the second season, it was really kind of hitting its stride, which is so often the case with network sitcoms. But it's absolutely fantastic uh, as a sitcom. I mean, not as good as 30 Rock or... Parks and Rec or The Office, but I mean, you said the last five years, so we're going with that because I think I think it's in its fifth season now, so it just barely made it under the wire. And what else? And coincidentally, both those series recently canceled, but then got picked up by other networks. So huzzah and hooray! For the third thing that pops in my mind is uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which is absolutely amazing since it was just planted into my mind. But I'm not going to go with that. And then I also think of Fargo. Oh my God, Fargo is so amazing. But, uh, again, I mean, you know, let's say Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul, I think, is, I mean, you know, just really premier, top-tier, absolutely amazing stuff, and probably has a broader, safer appeal. I mean, maybe even Jen. No, no, Jen would enjoy it, because Jen does not care for fiction where the lead character is a, uh, a lovable slob who's down on his luck. She doesn't care for that. So, but those are the three, the first thing that popped into my mind. That is tough without a list. But anyway, let us move on. Thanks, Thomas. And let's see here. Oh, we're to Scott. 
This is it. We're at the end of the personal Q&A. Scott has one question, and it is, if we were to rename Rotto Runs Through to our Care Bear alter egos, what names would we use? Or which Care Bears will we name ourselves after? I have no I I have never watched an episode of Care Bears. I yeah, I what mm, let's see. All right, I will look up the names of Care Bears and we will pick one. I mean, if you'd asked me Smurfs, I could have done that. Let's see. Actually, I would have had a hard time doing that too. But let's see. Care Bear Bear this is hard one-handed B E A R characters. All right. Let's get the list of names of the Care Bears. There's Cheer Bear, Share Bear, Funshine Bear, Grumpy Bear, Tender Heart Bear, Harmony Bear, Wonder Heart Bear, Brave Heart, um, Brave Heart Lion, Bright Heart Raccoon, Lots of Heart Elephant, Cozy Heart Penguin. See, I, I want to be contrary and not do a bear, but do uh, one of the other animals. But you did say bears, so Honey Pie. What are you going to go with? Cheer, Share, Funshine, Grumpy, Tenderheart, Harmony, or Wonderheart? Um, I don't know. They've got descriptions, but you're scrolling too fast for me to actually read them. All right, Jen. Actually, I, I was just going to go by the name, but apparently we're going to go read the descriptions. So hold on, everybody. Okay, well, I'm, uh, I'm already, I think I'm Cheer Bear. Yeah, who wouldn't say Cheer Bear? I mean, everybody wants to think of themselves as cheery. Yep, spreading happiness is as evident in her constant smile as they are on her belly badge. I don't have a belly badge, but I think I try and share or spread cheer as much as I can. Yeah, how about you, honey? Hmm, I would probably, just quickly reading these descriptions, I might go with Funshine Bear, maybe? No, no, I mean, Grumpy, no. Tender heart, wise grandfatherly yeah, bear, whose heart is always in the right place, whether it's advice or understanding, knows just what a child needs. Share the says a perfect belly badge, a big red heart. So you're saying I'm tender heart bear, honey? I think you're, with all the internet policing you try to do with making <laughs> things nice, that might be a good one for you. And see, Harmony Bear is a talented performer. Oh. It's all about bringing folks together and encouraging them to do their best, through especially music. through music. So, but you're, you're still going to go with uh, Tenderheart for me, huh? Yes, Tenderheart. And you're sticking with cheer? Sure, yes. All right, there you have it, folks. And what a note to end on. Um, and folks, as always, if you'd like to have some questions about what Smurf we would um, map to, or what Snork, for that matter, that we would map to, or what Fraggle Rock character, by all means, send those to questions at rotto.com. And otherwise, I'm going to say thanks once again for listening, everybody. We'll be back in a month's time, give or take a few days. Thanks very much. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.